Welcome to the 5 Mind Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. And coming up this week, we are joined by the great editor, Keith Fraze, to talk John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy, self self-named Apocalypse Trilogy. Um, once again, I'm joined with Ted Haycraft for this episode. Yeah, hopefully to the mystery of John Carpenter and his uh, fan base and his critical assessment. Critical assessment is yeah. the key, which uh, I wanted all three of us to do this just because uh, you were you were watching Carpenter movies as they were coming out, and Keith and I are the bigger fans of it. Right, and then I keep, we, I know we keep on having a, a friend of mine keeps on going, what's the deal with John Carpenter? Which we bring up what's the in the episode. The um, but first up, what did you watch this week? Well, we had, we skipped a week, so we we have about two weeks worth of movies we watched. So. Oh, gosh, I, I mean, I'm not going to go back that far. I can't think of that far. Uh, I don't have my notes in front of me. But okay. I, I will say we saw both of us saw Eternals together. Yeah, well, that was almost two weeks ago. Was it? And then um, I saw uh, an interesting film called The Mountain with Jeff Goldblum. Oh, I, I, I shared it. Uh, they showed that at USI. I wanted to see that. Yeah, Strozik, a Herzog film. I uh, finally got. Uh, I've never seen that. That was shown for a film class. And then uh, I've been watching um, some episodes of The Night Stalker. The, the, the Kino just released the blue, the TV series. Uh, uh, blu-rays and i'm revisiting those and then we talked about this a few weeks ago because we were talking about was it david chase or it was on, oh, on the peak chase, it was yeah. on the peak episode uh, yeah. we were talking about it and then but more importantly shane i've i've, I've attended two bob dylan concerts and uh so oh, that, very cinematic <laughs> very very <laughs> well cinematic. no he, he's got some he's got a visual flair for his setup on the stage you know um the, the in the episode i mentioned that after we were done recording i was going to go see rewatch big trouble in little china which i did and Big Trouble in Little China is a movie I watched a lot at my cousin's house, but piecemeal. So, and I've, and I've seen it all the way through. I have, but I always forget it. But in the episode you kept talking about, and I guess it's just one of those things I didn't notice as a kid until you pointed it out, but it was so glorious in this viewing was how much in um, Big Trouble they are just making Kurt Russell look ridiculous. Oh, yeah. He's it just... is hilarious. Like, the, the most amazing moment, though, is near the end where uh, he ends up making out with Kim Cattrall and she's heavily made up. And so he spends an entire scene with lipstick on. Yes. Yes. Oh, that there, was great. There's a lot of fun in that. And, we, and, and I, you know, a lot of it credit goes to W.D. Richter, our, my uh, Buckaroo Bonsai uh, mm. writer director. Um, one of the cool the cool things I wanted to talk about this week, I'm, I, I should probably shouldn't go through the whole list of what we watched in the last two weeks. Uh, the Long Good Friday was I finally saw that for the first time. That was an interesting one, and I saw. Have uh, you ever seen? You the, know the Ellie Gould, Robin Alden? No, no, no. The uh, Bob Hoskins one. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah, that's right. Julie right. Christie. Or the no, guys singing. Not Julie, up, sorry, not Julie Christie. Um, um, Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. The guys singing upside down. We took a sequence. That's always been. A, that was always the big uh, visual takeaway from that film. Uh, it was a very. Uh, it was great. Um, <laughs> and have you, I don't think it, barely anyone's seen this movie. There was a Crooked Man I saw two weeks ago. Kirk Douglas? Yes. Wow. It's, what, what, um, it's Joseph Mankiewicz's uh, second to last movie, which, and you know, I think you'd be interested in seeing it because it's Joseph Mankiewicz kind of responding to the spaghetti westerns. Well, yeah. And I mean, I might have seen it on TV as a kid. I mean, that's been around. I mean, that's just one of those. It's not as square as you think. It's, yeah. it's pretty good. It's Henry Fonda, too, is in it, yeah. too. Well, yeah. Now that I, I, I would probably definitely would go back to it because of Mankiewicz's involvement. I mean, there, there's definitely some squareness in it. Like the score alone, the title is based off the song that they use in it, and that song is reused a lot. But, yeah. um, but the thing that the coolest thing I wanted to talk about this week that's excited me the last few days is Disney finally put out Disney Plus finally put out the IMAX version of Marvel movies, and I don't understand. Very few deep Blu-rays I've seen. Like uh, the Nolan Nolan's been good about it for the most part, but they don't put out the IMAX aspect ratio of the movies. 
And these movies come out two, three, five, too. So they cut off a lot of image. So I watched Shang-Chi, uh, which rewatched that. And one, I'm are, so, also. Are you feeling a difference? Are you seeing a difference? It, well, I mean, come on. We've, we, we went through VCR peers who were always complaining about the pan and scan, which we talk about on this episode with Carpenter. And you're cutting off near half the image of what they shot. If they shot it in IMAX, I mean, a lot of these Marvel movies, uh, Eternals is, is odd in that it's back and forth between IMAX a lot. Very, it's very, it goes back and forth a lot. But a lot of these other ones are shot on these, uh, Ari cameras that are IMAX resolution. So the, the whole movie's that way. So the whole, like these whole movies are an IMAX ratio. And there's a bunch of movies I, I want to see along this. Like the, the, the one I was thinking about that's kind of a holy grail for me of the last two years is Skyfall. Skyfall was Roger Deakins shooting an IMAX ratio. And then the one we see on Blu-ray is full two, three, five. You're having one of the world's greatest cinematographers cut off half their image. Hmm. And I mean, a lot of a lot of how this works when you cut it off is you you still center uh, the, your composition with the center, and um, most of the other parts are headroom. But even on Shang-Chi, I was looking at this like you can tell they moved the image up and uh, where they punched in for the two, three, five version, they put like they moved it up and down. It's not just center of the frame. Hmm. You know, I I, I had, I'm kind of uh, getting a little confused here. Is are they shooting with two different cam? Are they shooting the film with uh, two cameras simultaneously? No. Or they're using the IMAX camera, and but how can they get the uh, how can they work with the, the the ratio, the scope ratio, the widescreen ratio? They're cutting it off. They're cutting off half the image. They're they're just right. So how do they? But then how can so when you see a widescreen image in the film, you're that's not an IMAX camera then. Sometimes it is. Yeah, no. Wow. I mean, it's the same one. How do you do that? You literally just put black bars over and don't show half of what you shot. <laughs> okay. That's my point. Uh, okay. That's bizarre. I heard Joe Dante mentioned the other day about uh, a 70, it was a 3D or 70 millimeter one that they had to shoot two different versions of. And famously, Oklahoma is a like a technoscope movie that they had to shoot two different versions of. Two different versions. But we're talking about the same thing and you're just... And and it's so what what you're you you you're agitated your voice so what are you what are you proposing that they should just it's just, I don't see it, it is very little skin off their back to just show the full aspect of what they shot I mean we're talking things like the most popular movie of the last ten years so it might be Avengers Endgame why are they they they're now just showing the full IMAX version this isn't available on the Blu-ray so you're saying it should that's the way it should be yes I gotcha and I mean and like Eternals did this so it's, it goes back all the way to the nolan dark knight stuff where they go back and forth because it's a sound issue it's that, a sound issue so when they it, it, these marvel ones these modern ones are mostly shot on a digital camera high resolution so yes you're seeing in the theatrical one where you're seeing the 235 you're seeing the imax shot one but a lot of these people that are shooting on film imax film that is still an issue because what happens is an imax camera is too loud to get uh, to get audio, to get dialogue audio out of off of it, and so, have you ever looked at the behind the scenes? And like, I don't know. I feel like the modern casings have gotten better because uh, a lot of these, um, like Mission Impossible has figured it out. The Bond movies figured it out, but um, they would literally go shoot a scene with film on an IMAX camera, and then they'll do another take and not turn on the camera to just get audio and then use that audio and put it over the shot that they had a second ago, just because vocal rhythms will remain the same. So man, I, I guess I wasn't really, I've been, I haven't been paying attention. So I, I, more people should be paying attention to this is my point. 
Yeah, well, yeah, when well, you're talking about uh, <laughs> or not, Nerdlinger. <laughs> <laughs> you're saying that okay, a film. So they're shooting an entire two-hour film, and and it was an IMAX camera, and they are masking the lens at certain points. Uh, digitally, they're they're cropping it with a with a letterbox. That is, just seems kind of defeatist or silly. Or I mean, I'm I'm, I'm missing, thank you, Ted. Am I, am I missing I, that, something here? No. Uh, or maybe I'm missing what's, something. What's the aesthetic? What's the aesthetic going on? Why why would they do that? Uh, sometimes, again, I don't know. I I, I find this odd. Uh, sometimes your deliverables, the contracts they have in deliverables, have very specific. We want this in a certain ratio or something like that. But that even still is like I don't. So when you're watching on Blu-ray, do you actually can you see the the density difference in an IMAX uh, picture than, and then the uh, that a regular uh... actually that's a question for you. Can you can you because they're moving back and forth on some of these movies. Yeah. Because so, so things like the Marvel movies are shot entirely digitally, so it's the same camera and they're just cutting off. And actually, you know what? I think I do have an answer for this because I think IMAX there was a contractual thing with Disney Plus and IMAX that they allowed to show the full aspect ratio. That I'm the wrong person it, to ask because I'm I'm the I will watch a, a, a public domain or a gray market disc just because I want to watch it I want to see it okay sure you know and I'm not I've never been a high tech man I had I bought a whole uh, but you're overwhelmed by a good visual or a, a no, rich no, no, visual no, no, image. I appreciate it I understand it I can I can I, I mean I, I understand all that but I've I, at home I rather I rather consume spend my money and time on acquiring. The, the the library as opposed to the technology and i know uh you're a quantity over quality person yeah basically somewhat but uh somewhat. In ter- in ter- well the quality of a tech the hardware and the quantity of the software well uh but you would never watch you're not a smartphone owner but you would never watch a movie on a smartphone oh God, would you no I, see I, there's limitations i would really i i will be surprised if i once i once i break down and get a smartphone if I ever would. Uh, well, what that. you're also describing is limitations of what's available too, which I, I this just on a fundamental level. I, I, I think now that we're saying this out loud, this has to be an IMAX contractual thing, but I don't understand why. It's interesting that we're talking about this because John Carpenter uh, was one that was one of the directors that took Panavision and really made a wonderful aesthetic out of it. Yeah. that's a good transition. Um, one of the things we didn't mention on this that I wanted to bring up is that uh, John Carpenter I don't. I forget where he's from. Is it like New York or Chicago? But he spent most of his early life in Bowling Green and actually went to Western Kentucky our, before he went to USC. Our wonderful southern neighbor, the Kentucky, the state of Kentucky, the Commonwealth of Kentucky. <laughs> and his father taught music there, and that's where he learned a lot of his music theory and a lot of his. The I mean, we talk a little about his synth work, and, and obviously a lot of his composing in the the episode. But yeah, he actually comes back every once in a while. I, he's been back to, to revisit it and be honored by them. But uh, yeah, they're uh, Bowling Green. A lot of Evansville people go to school there. You know, he's a great. Great directors can come out of any region. Well, yeah. when, you know, I remember when Halloween came out, and when I started, you know, researching who he was and what this guy was all about, it's like, oh wow, he's from Bowling Green. Wow, we were all kind of uh, excited about that mm-hmm. at the time. That's crazy. Well, Keith Reyes is on this episode. Uh, his most recent film that he uh, edited is A Mouthful of Air, which was in theaters and. Uh, so we, we went to plug that. But. Amy Irving and uh, yeah. Amanda Seyfried. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this episode, John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. Dun, 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 dun. 
I think one of the big reasons I wanted you two particularly to do this is, um, and I've talked to Ted about this before, I'm trying to remember exactly where my opinion on Carpenter changed to him being one of the disregarded bests that everyone just is not paying attention to anymore. Um, I want to give you a little bit of credit for that, Keith, because it would have been around the same time we met, but I can't remember. I remember I had this amazing viewing of watching the thing on my laptop and I like started it at four in the morning by myself in the dark with no lights on. It was like one of the greatest. That's the way to watch it. That's the only way to watch it. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's up there with like, I've watched Shining and Eraserhead all on like really tiny TVs by myself in the dark for the first viewing. And it was the best viewing stage one. But anyway, my point is Ted was going to the movie theaters at this time. This is the exact type of genre movies that he would have been really to this day defending saying like, I was the one that saw it. And Every time I bring up Carpenter to Ted, now, now, let's let's be straight. I keep on I keep on bringing it up for us to discuss because I have a close friend who says, "What's the deal with John Carpenter?" He keeps on coming, and so and we keep on repeating the discussion, and I keep on trying to come up with some good answers to that. Well, what's the critique? What is the question? Well, I think I think he, my friend thinks that the concepts are great, especially like I think Escape from New York. The concept is great. But the execution is not as it doesn't it doesn't follow through on how great the concept is by the end. Uh, well, you also point out occasionally you say the pacing and like it's always like a third there, of a good movie well, or I half in, a good I movie. I put in Escape from New York just before I came over here, and I'm like, my God, he is just taking his time. Uh, and, and, <laughs> I, and, and, and I'm not, you know, I grew up with this pacing. I mean, I'm a Leone buff. I love Leone, and you know, and that's a talk about his pacing there. And and of course, John's a big uh, Leone fan. Uh, but that's what's kind of start, that was kind of the thing I think Shane wanted us to do this because I kept on going. What is the, my friend keeps on going? What is the deal with Carpenter? And I'm like, well, let's try to figure this out. You know. Well, and also Keith, to get, get you into this, you unabashedly like, I, and I feel like your fandom's grown over the years when you talk to me about it. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, I think yeah. So so John Carpenter is one of my favorite filmmakers, and I think um, I. And I actually, I don't know entirely where it started. Uh, I mean, it started with The Thing. I, that's kind of where it is. But I, I think because I, I don't... Do you remember your first viewing of The Thing? You no, know, it's funny is I don't. I, I think the the reason... I, see, I came to it late. I've always been a big horror fan. But I discovered The Thing late. I think actually the, the reason why I decided to sit down and watch it, and I think it might even be one of the first Carpenter films I ever saw, was... Um, I think I was watching one of those, uh, God, was it AFI or whoever did like, like did like the hundred best scares or hundred best horror movies. Bravo or like, did like, one. I remember in the aunts. I like yeah, that one. one of those things. And I was sitting down watching it and just kind of ticking them down and trying to, like, you know, I was making a list of the ones I hadn't seen. And, um, at that time it was a lot I hadn't seen. And then the thing came up and that's where they were starting to show some of the practical effects. And I was like, Holy crap, how have I never seen this? So I went and watched it and I remember loving it, but I don't remember how old I was. I probably was in my early twenties. But the thing that actually made me come back to it and what started my love of Carpenter was, um, uh, so my wife, uh, Allie, she is, she hates horror films. She won't watch them with me. That's why I'm always watching horror films, usually at night by myself after everyone's gone to sleep in my household because no one will watch them with me. Um, the way they were meant to be seen. Yeah. And so she, um, there was one year where she was trying to challenge herself during Halloween um, during the Halloween season and uh, was like trying to watch a bunch of horror films. And 
Uh, so she watched like Alien. She watched some old stuff, you know, Dracula and, you know, um, uh, uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon and that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, you know, I remember the thing being fantastic. So let's put that one on. And I hadn't seen it in years and we were watching it. And I was, we were about like halfway through and I was like, holy shit. I forgot that this is absolutely terrifying, this movie. And you know what? I think we, I remember you telling me about this. I, I feel like you were, we were working together when this happened. Yeah. Cause well, I, I, once we finished, I said, I basically told her, I was like, Ali, if you can make it through that, you can make it through anything. Cause I really think the thing is probably one of the scariest movies. And I was yeah. generally surprised by how like terror, like nothing scares me when I watch films usually. And I remember how terrified I actually was of that film. And I think it actually goes back to, um, I'd love to, I mean, I, I don't know if we want to get into it later, but I, I do, I have some thoughts about John Carpenter's pacing. Cause I, I actually, t- I, I do agree with you in a lot of ways or, or your friend in that, Carpenter has some odd pacings, which I actually think is what makes his horror films so effective. And actually film like I do, I still love Escape from New York, but I think his action films are the ones that are the oddest to me. Like Escape from New York is weird because it is very slow and it's oddly paced. And even though the music and the score is incredible, it's that kind of simple thump. But like it doesn't, it's not like visceral in the same way. Well, that's a good point. Action films, because I think Escape from New York, the when they the opening and they're in the city and you get to discover the city, the pacing works and it's fine, it's eerie, it's strange. It's when they get to the action climax, it just kind of peters out. He doesn't. It's not as uh, it doesn't hold up to the strength of the first half of the concept and the eeriness of being this whole island of New York being in a prison. So that's a good point about his how he handles action as opposed to atmosphere right yeah he's all atmosphere which is what i think makes which again for horror films i I never really cared that much for jump scares or even that much for gore but it's the dread and it's the atmosphere and the tone of it all so that's why i think like even though they're somewhat schlocky i find like the fog is fantastic or christine like all those films really really work for me because they have kind of the slow atmospheric pulse to them um that yeah i think that like and, and when you see later Carpenter, like I really, even though Carpenter is one of my favorite filmmakers, I, I think Escape from L.A. doesn't work at all. I think I, I j- actually just recently saw Ghost of uh, Ghost of Mars. And I thought it was terrible. Um, Which Ghost of Mars, I didn't realize it was apparently originally. I, I think I knew it back back in the day it was supposed to be a third escape. It was going to be this. Right. There was a rumor. Yeah, no. Well, I had heard the same thing that, that, it, that basically escape. If Escape from L.A. had been successful, there was going to be escape from the world. And it was going to, I think there were elements that were taken over because Ghost of Mars is also kind of a remake of Assault Assault on Precinct 13, or at least a remake of Rio Bravo, which Assault on Precinct 13 was kind of based on. Um, And I shouldn't say Ghost of Mars is terrible. It's just, it doesn't work for me. Um, Because I think the action, the action parts of that, it has a lot of action, just aren't. Yeah, they don't work in the same way that some of his stu- his 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 horror works for me. Well, the unfair the unfair thing to me, especially rediscovering him, is that thing of why do certain directors, be especially ones that have made money in the past, and especially ones that like have their old movies that didn't make money supposedly refound, and everyone's like, oh, this was especially with the thing is like, wow, this is a great movie. Why doesn't anyone like? act on that and like because i mean carpenter ostensibly retired after ghost of mars and then he made the ward and he was doing some tv stuff but for the most part even now like even when this these options come up to him he's just like i'm scoring i'm scoring with my son well, he's, he's getting up there in age too you know he's uh uh at, 
he, 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 I mean, he wasn't as active, but you know, that's interesting that you said that. Cause I'm thinking the, the films that he had a studio you know, behind him and he had a studio budget and he had all the, all the uh, access to studio stuff are the ones that didn't make money. Yeah. They all didn't do well at the box office. Uh, his early stuff, his independent stuff, you know, the, you know, Halloween was this one of the most blockbuster. But did, know, the, did, the, did the two after Big uh, Big Trouble in Little China? Did they? Well, I mean, see, they the, cheap, the, the, those were low budgets. Yeah, the, yeah. The uh, Prince of Darkness and They Live was uh, Universal released it, but they were on a low budget called Alive Films did those. Yeah. So and a caracol actually released them in Europe. Well, uh, Keith, Keith and I were talking about this beforehand because I thought there was a third one, and Keith was saying it was a series of four, and that's why he went to do. There were supposed to be more, and then they yeah. got, and then they got trouble. Universal wanted more, and then but they wanted to, they wanted to control the European rights, take them away from caracol. So it got became a, just a huge mess. So it all fell apart. The Alive contract all fell apart, even though those two guys from Alive, their names are on the uh, Village of the Dam. But they didn't do anything with it, so it's just a big mess. Oh, interesting. Uh, well, we we thought that he went back to the studios with Memoirs of an Invisible Man. He did. Well, that was a studio thing. Yeah. But I'm saying like we thought the allure of the studios would brought him back out of the thing, or but uh, I mean that does, sounds like that's not the case. But he had, he had he was going to do more for the Alive, yeah. And the, and uh, Christine was a work for hire. He did. It wasn't his choice. He was both. He was working on Firestar. Yeah, he no, I knew, Firestar. I knew Firestar. Firestar was a movie. I and helped. then he just took Christine, uh, just because he needed a job. He goes, "I need a job." Well, well then Firestarter, Firestarter fell apart, right? Because yeah, of the thing being a right financial and critical disaster. I think he was but it was fired like Bill Bill film. Lancaster from the thing. I I know he did some dress. I forget if he's credited on the actual finished Firestarter, but. All right, essentially for this episode, we are talking about oh, yeah. John Carpenter's Apocalypse <laughs> trilogy. Now. Um, from what I can understand, this is a name he came up with. This isn't some a critical thing that a lot, well, time, the, a lot the, of times these unofficial trilogies, someone else names them and the director will take them up later. Let me give a, uh, well, I wouldn't know. I actually read this somewhere else. Uh, I was reading an article and uh, apparently he uh, he brought it up himself in a Wall Street Journal interview. How long ago John, do you know? I didn't get the date down on it. I mean, no, I've seen I've seen him mention it multiple times and he, and it's pretty plain. He just says movies I made that were the apocalypse. Which I happens. think is kind of funny because i'm always thinking when you first said this i'm like well the thing is it's kind of a lopsided trilogy because the thing is so big and great and the other two are just kind of interesting uh uh <laughs> here's where i know i disagree with keith i don't know if you're with me on well, this i mean I, yes, well, I, think, I think in the mouth of madness is an outright masterpiece and it's one of those Thank things where I, I i had you know in the mouth of madness actually i should say and i, I love prince of darkness too don't get me wrong but it is it's slower and weirder and smaller but I will say that um, In the Mouth of Madness is, I, I, I wanted to correct something I was saying earlier. I actually think that might have been the first Carpenter I ever saw because I remember seeing it when I was like 15 or so. And I don't remember anything else about it. It would have been the first age I saw my first Carpenter. Okay, but... uh, Keith, let me let me throw this at you. Okay, so that, yeah. so I was, I, I drew out this whole chart that it, it tracks my movie going with Carpenter. I was just a diehard Carpenter fan from the get-go with Halloween. And then we and I brought in Dark Star at campus. I was in college. I brought Dark Star in to see it so we could have a chance to see it. Um, my friend had uh, HBO and Cinemax, and uh, early on, and he had his own apartment. I didn't have an apartment. He went to work, but he let me go to his apartment when he was at work and watch Assault with Precinct Thirteen for the first time. So I was just I was right there, just gobbling up Carpenter, and I'm with him all the way to Big Trouble. For some reason, I don't go see. Prince of Darkness, and I don't go see Mouth of Madness at the theater. Yeah, and you were telling me earlier, um, Big Trouble is your favorite of his. Well, the thing in Big Trouble, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I, well, I, I will 
we'll get to that. I got I have, I have three favorites. Okay. Of his. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, 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 I've been telling. I've been racking my brain and trying to articulate this with Shane. Like I go, why didn't I see these films? Was it because of the the reviews, the box office? I was busy with something else going on, or I my I was already tired of John. I was I don't know why I would be because I love I love Big Trouble, so I don't know what happened. I mean, there. they were also kind of dumped, weren't they? I mean, like I feel like no. I mean, I know that In the Mouth of Madness was like barely released at all. Or, or New Line put it out in like February, I think, of 95. I think the only reason I came to it was because at the time I was like a Sam Neill fan. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I'm going to go see this because of Sam Neill. Well, I'm a big um, Charlton Heston's in the dang thing. And I I, I grew yeah. up on Charlton Heston, you know, and I, I don't know why. But anyway. I, I was going to say, Keith, to round us all off. Uh, I mean, obviously the thing is my favorite of these, but Prince of Darkness, my first viewing of that, I was just like, that's where I was like, I think I'm, because I hadn't seen In the Mouth of Madness since my teenage years. I was like, oh, I think I'm full into this apocalypse theory trilogy thing. Like these are Prince of Darkness is that thing. It's I don't know if it's the atmosphere, but something in the synth. But there's there's this the the term apocalypse applies to this. You feel like the world is ending in these movies. There the sense of dread is so thorough, but at the same time, it's still Carpenter's leanness of storytelling. He's so um to the point on this stuff i see i swear i'm just not with you guys on the pacing thing like it just feels like he's taking his time to build this stuff but which i guess maybe isn't completely disagreeing with what you're saying well i yeah i mean i'm not i, I don't i'm not trying to i don't know if it's, uh i'm not trying to be critical or one way or the other it's just got he's got a very very particular pacing that is very distinct distinctive of him i think of uh of all his peers uh that's out there Well, Keith, the other thing I was going to mention to you, uh, I was looking at these Vulture articles about it and so, and the observation... Well, first off, the one thing I, I kept che- checking in the middle of watching these movies was I think the source of why I would disregard uh, Carpenter and I think a lot of people around us, Roger Ebert hated John Carpenter for some reason. And it was always this backhanded where he gave all three of these movies two stars, I think. Yeah. I mean, everyone hated the thing. That's that's the, the, the when I discovered that that's the weirdest thing, which I didn't find out till recently, was that not only was it I can understand these things being box office failures, but the fact that critics like savaged it is just insanity to me. Because like, I mean, you look at the thing, and you clearly it's masterfully put together, or yeah. like you know, it has like I mean, it's hard to kind of deny it on its on just like on its like even just technical achievements. Just but. the high budget bleakness alone is makes it like worth. Um, the point I was going to make in the Vulture article, though, is that we, w- I would have, I think you might be the same, but we would have watched these on VHS. Pan and scan really screws over Carpenter. If you're cutting off half of his compositions, because Carpenter's compositions, I mean, the, the meat and potatoes of him is the, the love of, I think he's only done two movies that weren't uh, two, three, five. So there's, there's all of these anamorphic, a lot of steady cam shots. His composition is just it's 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 not even that it's like this masterful thing it's just so distinct you know a john carpenter frame when you see one right which is i find it so interesting that like i agree with you that that it's, it is his compositions and i can't i i don't remember seeing these things in panis in pan and scan but i'm sure i must have that must have how i first came to it um but what's weird is like it is that vhs vhs culture that actually was the first to elevate john carpenter as like as a cult status i mean beyond just halloween and stuff because like you know his films um I think they 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 almost all unanimously like uh, bombed at the box office for more or less, uh, except for after, Halloween, like the fog. You mean? Yeah, yeah. After those films, and I guess Christine did well too. But um, 
uh, but it, they got the kind of second life on VHS and um, which is crazy to me to think about it. Cause yeah, I mean, most of VHS like at the time were all just the full screen pan and scan stuff, which like we were saying is, is destroys his, his carefully crafted compositions. Um, I can't even imagine watching Prince of Darkness on, uh, uh, and, and that's that in the four by three, uh, box because it would make it seem, cause I mean, so much of that film is built around like, I mean, it's all, you know, it's all small spaces, small you know, church hallways and stuff like that. But he makes it look so grand and massive. Uh, even though it's only got the $3 million budget, he makes it big, so it looks so ma- grand. Because yeah. Of his, uh, there always feels like there's framing. two things happening in a frame at a given time. There's definitely yeah. an AB in almost every frame. Uh, I'm trying to think what I, I wouldn't, I didn't see Prince of Darkness in four or three. I might've seen the Alice Cooper video on MTV, but so right. do we want to go through these chronologically? We want to start with a thing. Sure. When did you first see the thing, Ted? I had a friend who was the manager at a theater, and we did an early morning screening. Me, him, and Jim Alexander. We sat in the front row, watched it by ourselves. At one point, the manager next to me, his legs started shaking because he was freaking out so much because the film was just freaking. Uh, it was such an intense uh, film. It's it's it is a masterpiece, and it's it's I have it's one of the you know I have no problems with the thing. Um, as far as I can even think. Uh, I watched some behind the scenes for the thing. And the one thing Carpenter says, besides the fact that it's the film of his that works the best, is that it seems like the one that he had the longest pre-production on. I, I think it's his most expensive. Big time, Big Trouble in Little China was more or less. Or? No, his most expensive is Escape from L.A. Because that was like $50 million. Oh, well, he said this is the one he had the most pre-production on that he was able to figure some stuff off. Although Escape from L.A., that makes sense, sadly, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was his studio film. It was like it was like his big studio break. I remember that. So definitely by the time uh, it was his biggest budget. Yes, and and uh, I thought that it was hilarious. I, I do have one little thing about the thing that cracks me up is he finally has a budget for music, uh, and he and he hires Ennio Morricone because he loves Ennio Morricone, and then he, and then what does this sound like? It sounds like a John Carpenter score. I mean, and he didn't use all of it. So I thought that was kind of weird, but he said he, he had, he had fun giving him money and, and being able to talk to him and meet him and, and work with him. The thing and, Keith, you and I can relate to is that I think this came out during hateful eighth was the majority of what he used of Marconi was the, the stems. Right. Because I think, um, I remember because Morricone, we just like, didn't really know what Carpenter wanted. And so we just sent a bunch of stuff. And I think, I think the only note that Carpenter kept giving him was less notes. I want less notes. And so eventually Morricone just like, all right, I'm just going to give you a Carpenter S score, which is a wonderful score. Yeah. It's crazy. yeah. If you look, I, um, I looked it up. It was nominated for the worst score at the Razzies that year. Uh, oh, the Razzies continuing their tradition of not knowing shit year after year. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, this, uh, uh, was shot by Dean Kundi who had shot, I think, I, don't, uh, I think he's, did he start with Halloween was the first one? Yeah, he goes back to Halloween. But yeah. he Dean Kundi uh, shot Big Trouble in Little China, but uh, this unionized him. And after this, he goes on to shoot Romancing the Stone through Death Becomes Her for Zemeckis, including the Back to the Future trilogy and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Jurassic Park. It's, yeah. ver- it's very strange that my cutoff going to the theater to see Carpenter uh, is in sync with uh, his change of cinematographers. Uh, I don't know. What, I don't know if that makes any. I don't know if there's anything there. Or not. Kundi, uh, um, uh, Kibbe, uh starts becomes a, mm. becomes a cinematographer after that. For, for, for everything except for Invisible Man, uh, up through Ghost. He stayed of Mars. with them the whole time. Yeah. 
Well, he did somebody. I thought there was somebody different for uh, there because he does. Dean Cundy does the thing, and then there's somebody different. I think for um, whatever's next was it Christine and uh, I, I thought he tried some new people for a while. There, there's one other person he tries, and then he goes back to Cundy for Big Trouble, and then it goes to to Kibby. Okay, I think that might be correct. Because I, I listened to a little bit of we'll get to into the mouth of madness later, but I listened to a little of their commentary, and all it was him and Kibby. I think it was Kibby Shop in the mouth of madness, right? Yeah, Kibby Shop, Prince of Darkness, and in the mouth of madness. Yeah, all it was was him talking to Kibby. He's like, "How'd you shoot? How'd you light this?" And like, and like what? And he's like giving film school lessons, like tell them what a 10k is and stuff like that in the commentary, and he's talking about framing. Yeah. It looks like a guy named Donald Morgan was the one who shot yeah, yeah. Starman Donald and Mor- Christine. Yeah, Donald M. Morgan. Uh, that's Christine, yeah. So, so, I mean, yeah, Christine is beautifully shot, too. Uh, Starman I haven't seen in a while, but um, it is, I mean, there is, that's that's one of the weird things about the Apocalypse trilogy is like, like in terms of um, linking everything together, like really the only thing that links them all together is that sense of dread um, that we keep talking about because like, yeah, most of the crew is different. Like there's, there's not like, obviously Cundy doesn't like the, uh, doesn't carry over. Uh, and I assume it's not Botine who does, who does the effects for in the mouth of madness. I don't think it's him. Um, yeah. Cause ILM has a credit on in the mouth of madness. I found that funny. Oh, really? Yeah. There's, there's a few CGI effects. Um, but, uh, Robert, yeah, that, that is, I mean, and the thing, the thing about the thing is that is career making effects like around that time it's what two years after american werewolf in london and like rick baker and, and rob Otten and, and uh oh nicotero uh, so the special effects for did oh right that's right yeah K, howard burger nicotero it was k and b because robert right, kurtzman it's right before like uh from dust till dawn like a year before that but my point is uh um sam winston stan winston around that time that was the the we have a mutual friend, Brian Schofield, who's really big into the uh, early '80s body horror, and like that is just a renaissance era for that. And the thing is, just, just it, rewatching it the other day, it was it's just a marvel how ambitious it was to do this stuff. To think that this stuff was going to feel fluid and like real and tactile and moving, like not just like a sculpture. And like some of it is the sound. Like the sounds are so fucking effective on this. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I. It's one of those crazy things where you look. I mean, I look back on a lot of Carpenter films, and some of it's just like novelty or nostalgia or whatnot. But you look back on the thing, and it and those. I mean, so I I will probably I feel like I probably watch the thing in its entirety once every two years or so. Okay. But I will go back probably every couple of months and rewatch certain segments of it or just check it out on YouTube or something like that. Just rewatching, you know, obviously, the, the spider head part or the blood test part, right. because I think that those effects um, are still so it's, it's I, I think that's thing that blew me blew my mind every time I come back to it is this notion of like it never they never they never age to me like they still seem they they still seem like they actually went and found an alien <laughs> and that's that that's the secret to it like it's not rubber and goo and plastic it's actually um there's 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 yeah I, I can't ever get tired of it it's it's kind of insane what they did and per the the American Werewolf in London's uh, transformation sequence uh, the thing follows this suit is these are all kind of brightly front lit stuff they aren't trying to hide some there's a lot of these effects that are in the shadows but a lot of them are not they're straight head on i so i was the exact opposite so after i had that viewing on my laptop which 
would have been I was probably the same age or late maybe a little later than you Keith I was I was late 20s when I finally tried to do my renaissance with Connor Carpenter and watch the thing I couldn't watch it for years afterwards and I think I snuck in a YouTube clip that had all of them combined and I was just like nope gonna be a few years before I get back to it it's just so effective well what I forget I mean just to kind of go back to his the way the I want to talk a little bit about the the how the thing is structured and 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 the pacing of it. Just kind of go back to that kind of thing because I really think that that is like the ultimate um, miracle of that movie is is how it's paced and how it's put together. Um, because like I was saying, I, I do go. I'll revisit the film. I will. Um, I'll watch the special effects sequence. But I'm just rewatching the film again for for preparing to to come on and talk with you guys. Um, I forgot that what makes the movie work so well is like you have you essentially have three sections to the movie, right? And like, you have the first section where like, you're trying to kind of figure out what's going on. Um, you know, obviously the great opening with the dog. And then from that, it sets the question of like, what the hell is happening? And then the part that I always forget about is the incredibly strong middle section. So there's the middle section is the third section, which is where everything goes batshit crazy. And we all remember that. And it's wonderful. But like the middle section is actually, I think what makes this movie the masterpiece, which is it's, it's the, um, that's the paranoia section where they realize that any one of them could be the thing. They don't know who it is. That's where the effects really aren't happening. This is all happening before the, essentially the, the chest opens up and eats the guy's arms. Yeah. Um, there's that whole section where uh, they're, everyone's just kind of theorizing about who could possibly be infected with this thing. And, and there's a lot of distrust going on. Um, and that's when, you know, Kurt Russell gets the command of everything and everyone's kind of like, and, and he and Keith David are starting to butt heads a little bit. Um, and I, but I think it really is that middle section that gives the 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 heart and soul to this film. That, that gives the like the metaphorical power of it. Which well, is, you, you, know, you, you do start out with the dog effects, so you do have the dog effects to give you a little bit of a like. This is still kind of bizarre and disgusting, but yeah, you're right. This whole second section is the character building, but also character building the the paranoia building too. Right, and that same kind of. Um, I will just say, I think that same kind of structure where one of Carpenter's best attributes is that he always knew kind of where to put the money, right? Like he knew, he knew where, yes. like he was very, very, very good about like knowing that, okay, I have a small budget. Like, I really think that we, like Prince of Darkness and, and uh, even in the Mouth of Madness, like don't, that you, you don't see the constraints of the budget that much, maybe a little bit with Prince of Darkness, but even not so much. Um, and I think it's because, I see half of that was the fun for me too. Yeah, and I think it's because he knows that like you're gonna have this big third act payoff. And anyway, that's where shit's gonna go wild. And I think that that's what that's what happens with each one of these films is that that that's where he throws the money in the effects because like in the mouth of madness everything goes that's when all the crazy stuff starts happening and where you see all the crazy effects. Prince of Darkness like you don't really like, nothing really happens up until like the very third act where all that kind of stuff. So it's all building up to it. And I will say I think that's one of the reasons why something like Escape from New York is the same kind of thing. It's a sort of slow build to the third act, but without everything going batshit crazy, um, it, it, like Escape from New York kind of builds to a sort of, um, uh, I don't know, action sequence kind of climax that is sort of a little anticlimactic, I would say. Um, and I feel like it doesn't have the same thrust that these films have, which is in the third act where the chaos all happens. Um, so I don't know. That's what, that's kind of my theory. It's almost like they've been building towards an apocalypse, you might say. <laughs> yes. So I think in a way that structuring is what makes this apocalypse trilogy work so well for, for me. 
Um, I wanted to mention my now I watch this movie usually um, maybe yearly. I got before this uh, my last two times of watching this has been with my teenage nephew who when I showed it to him for the first time we put on an EPK of how they made the movie afterwards and um, I forget I think it was during the dog transformation he turned to me and said this is the greatest movie I've ever seen and it was just he was clear he was into the creature effects. But so anyway, I watch this movie usually semi-yearly and the theory about this movie that has dominated my last watch is probably not, especially this last one, not the most productively is a few years ago, Dean Kundi, the cinematographer came out and said that if you rewatch the movie, whenever in lighting, you know, besides, you know, all the traditional three, three point lighting systems, one thing Hollywood traditionally does is they always have, I think it's called a beauty dot. Um, it's the dot that's in the top of your pupil and in, in your iris. Um, there's always a dot in the background that a light that's trying to get that out. Kundi came out and said, if you want to know who we tracked as being the thing in any given scene, it's who doesn't have a beauty dot. So anytime you watch someone's eyes being obscured in darkness, and this last viewing especially, I was just like, I almost started reverse engineering because the last few ones I've really been trying to like, all right, who at what point? And this last one, the rules went out the window for me, so it was hard to figure out. Because it also reminded me a lot of the other great Summer of 82 sci-fi movie that didn't make money. Blade Runner has the very famous uh, lighting effect of whenever you're trying to tell who's a replicant. And there's the one scene where um, it shows on Harrison Ford. And so really Scott said that, oh, that's that was my, I meant that on purpose. It was supposed to be a replicant. And the thing is, the lighting effect, both in The Thing and Blade Runner, is just inconsistent like but like for the most part it works it on the thing but um i really really noticed it in the very last i've always noticed in the last scene where uh uh it's uh keith david and kurt russell looking at each other you can tell one person doesn't have light in their eyes in that scene is it keith david or who who is it (laughs) i mean kurt russell always sort of has a twinkle in his eye so i assume it's impossible (laughs) to not have him not to have that i I was gonna leave it for suspense but of course no it's keith david keith david doesn't have any light in his eyes but I mean, like, even as early in the movie as um, one cool, I, I, last few viewings, like I said, I reverse engineer who the thing is. Um, one of Wilford Brimley's first scenes where he's uh, doing the autopsy on the alien, there was this really cool surround effect I'd never noticed before where you hear a heartbeat. And it's almost like the, th- the dead thing is alive and getting to Wilford Brimley at that point. But then... There's that really famous shot, which a lot of people pointed out, was after uh, um, Blair, Wilford Brimley's character, gets abandoned to his shack, and he's gone, he's gone for a while, and they come back to him. The shot, besides that, like, it's very clear there's no light in his eyes in that shot. So, But even if you don't know that gag, like, we're in the mise-en-scene of it all, in the foreground, right next to him, is a noose. Yeah. So it's like, he killed himself, and the thing got a hold of the body. That was the implication I always took. That's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Just the fact that it's not explained. No one even reacts to it. They just open up the little eye hole to start talking to him. And there's just a noose there. <laughs> and he's talking so calmly too. He's just like, yeah. he's not even, that thing. He's like, I'm good now. You can let me out. Yeah. That's one of the things I realized on several rewatches is like, yeah, what was going, cause like you assume when I first saw it, I was like, oh shit, this, He's going to, you just assume that he's preparing himself. He's going to kill himself before letting the thing get to him. But then you realize in hindsight, oh, never mind. The reason why he's acting so calm, even though he's, he's clearly preparing to, he, he at one point was clearly preparing to kill himself is because he's now been infected at some point. Um, 
I, uh, that I, I think the fact that the noose is never discussed or mentioned or talked about is one of the clearest signs of what, how the strength of this movie it's, it's, it's just one of those things, the carpenter things of like where you don't, I mean, I, so this is talked about ad nauseum and I, I you know, and the, the circles that we run in, but the problem with so much horror, both back then and nowadays is the over explaining of things, the over, like everything that's mysterious is talked about. I mean, I, um, uh, not to go off on a tangent, but like, I really like Mike Flanagan's work. I think it's very strong and very powerful, except that his series, the series that I watch, they always go on way too long. And by the final episode, he's explained everything that he's so mysteriously set up beforehand and it becomes not scary anymore. Um, and I feel like the fact that one of the Carpenter strong suits is he just throws things in there that are never explained, never talked about, never fully um, even addressed. And that's what adds to the mystery and dread, overall dread of the film. And yet, to your point that maybe the second act or the second section is the strong, is the part that like really elevates the material to this. This Car- Carpenter is a good writer himself. He's a really good writer filmmaker in terms of writing for himself and writing leanly for himself. But this might be one of um, W.D. Richter aside, one of the best scripts he's worked with. It's Bill Lancaster, and like Bill Lancaster's two big claims to fame as a screenwriter: this and Bad News Bears, and. The writing on this isn't and he's the Bert Lancaster's son. Yeah, That's the yeah, other claim to, to be. <laughs> yeah, Bert Lancaster's son. Um, the um, and all the writing isn't the explanation of this. The writing's character, and also, but also, he when you when you heard uh, Lancaster talk about this, he a lot of the scenarios he was interested in were the like paranoia-inducing stuff. The what is going to make someone distrust somebody else? Those scenes were the ones that he was most interested in writing and wanted and brought him to the script. Right, because this the script apparently, um, you know, uh, like like thing from another world uh, makes an appearance in Halloween on a TV, but and it was a Carpenter favorite, but like this the studio had been trying to remake this for a while, and they for a while even had like Carpenter says Toby Hooper was involved for a long time while he was involved. Right. Have either of y'all seen? Um, I've never seen the original thing from the other world, so like I don't. Oh, have you know what, uh, Keith? Our old boss. It was a favorite of our old bosses. Oh really? Yeah. He I mean, I, he I mean, told me he like... he said there was um the there's a big famous sequence scene in there and he said that was one of the scariest things he saw as a kid in a movie. Right. Because I know I mean it's a Howard Hawks film, right? Yes. Oh, or, Howard Hawks produced, produced it. Him. Well, it's kind of unofficially yeah. directed. It's kind of a Toby Hooper Spielberg on Poltergeist thing. Right. 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 Yeah. It's 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 pretty much acknowledged that it was Hawks directing, even though he uh uh gosh is it Kenneth Toby. Is that the actor's name? Oh, I don't know. Well, uh, I find it. I was going over this stuff too. I find it fascinating that um, we mentioned you mentioned Rio Bravo in regards to Solemn Precinct Thirteen and him remaking a an ostensible Howard Hawks movie. Howard Hawks, I as great a director was, he was not the most visual directors. Well, yeah, that. Well, I was. I, I, I figured the way Howard Hawks would be get mentioned when we talked here. I, I was going to say the great thing about Hawks is is. Um, the the uh, the uh, the critical assessment is that his themes are so strong, and he can do any genre. But I I what you just said there, I don't see a strong visual sense. With and Hawks. It, but Carpenter could do any genre too. Yeah. But the, the the have you looked at the list of movies he almost did but didn't? Like Santa Claus, the movie was one he almost did. 
or the one that I thought... John Carpenter? Yeah. He's, he thought the script wow. was bad and he wanted to rewrite it. But the one I would have loved to see that, like apparently they, they left on uh, good terms, but he almost did. He was talking about doing Exorcist 3. What 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 made him not? Uh, end up doing well, that? William Peter Blatty was kind of um, um, very you know it's a lot of the conversations he would have had with Freakin' about the original only he he had the clout to win this time so I mean Carpenter and him said they got along really well and they they left mutually on it but right I mean I will say that one of the things I also just um. <sighs> that I'm conflicted about, but I also really love about John Carpenter is his sort of attitude of being kind of the journeyman sort of director that he will. I mean, you look at something like Shane, I told you, I just recently watched uh, uh, memoirs of an invisible, invisible man, which I think is an example. Actually, I would argue and say that it's a perfect example of why I think John Carpenter is a great director um, because he is, that is not a great movie. It's a, I think it's a perfectly serviceable movie. But the, the fact that he has the fundamentals and a capability of just of, of jumping to sort of any sort of I mean, obviously he jumps in throughout genre in like his sort of um, all of his famous films. But even just doing this he's, as a director for hire, he's still so capable and able to make a perfectly cohesive and enjoyable film, even though it doesn't have his signature touches. Um but I just love that sort of attitude that he has. It's kind of the John Ford attitude, which is like, yes, yeah. of course you're an auteur, but the way he views it, he's like, eh, you know, I just, this is why I put the camera here. I didn't think anything behind it. I just thought the light looked nice or something. Or, or he's like, we framed it this way because we Even had Even when he's writing his movies and doing the music to his movies, he still has that journeyman mentality. Yeah. Well, he's always saying that the reason, the only reason why he did the music was not because he felt artistically drawn to it. It was because he's like, ah, I'm the cheapest guy who can do it the best way. You know, like he's uh like he's basically it's it's a, it's a cost-saving device for him um he has and a, he has that funny story on precinct 13 where he's like he he only did the music in one day and there's none of it was to picture yeah jesus it's wild to think about all that and of course now i think you look back i mean he's obviously we've talked about he's you know he's retired and doesn't seem to have any sort of interest of going back to filmmaking but i do know the thing that he's most excited about or, or, or i don't know if it's most what he's most proud of but he talks a lot about his scores like he will travel around and um uh you know perform his scores live um and so i think it's something that he's finally embraced it's something that he's very proud he used of to perform with the yeah. sun was a big thing right um well i i my issue is like why what would he have been with money more consistently like we know the movies are going to be beloved after a certain point maybe the box office wasn't there for him but i think uh uh we're i think i think uh starman is another good example that he can do a uh, big budget uh, support, and it's a. I think it's a see. I, I th- it's a flawless film, as I'm concerned. I think Starman is super strong. Uh, you can and, you can see up above me. The only two uh, Carpenter movies I own are Starman and The Thing. And you know he can hold head to head with Spielberg on that. I mean, with the. Yeah. Uh, I I just uh, I adore Starman. I think you know, uh, uh, getting back to these uh, big budget films, it's funny. Ironically, my three favorite films. And I think they're they show how a, a, a good a filmmaker can be. It is the thing, Starman and Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> uh, to me, other things, uh, the other films, there's great stuff in them, but either they peter out or they have a budget problem or something else going on or whatever or work for hire. 
uh, uh, to me, that's is my three favorite. Well, the Vulture article made a point that I found really fascinating, which is probably explains why these movies age well. But sometimes, at least in like I know Carpenter says maybe this is the reason why these movies don't make money right away, is one of the defining scenes of Carpenter's career was the scene that he was always going to be coming towards again and getting away from. And Keith, I kind of want to get your reaction on this scene. Is the uh, ice cream scene in Assault on Precinct Thirteen? Because you're because you know, the thing is, I, I was watching this. <laughs> I watched it on YouTube yesterday again. I hadn't seen it forever. First off, I forgot how funny it is, or not funny, but like the girl gets killed on screen while the person that he's stalking gets killed off screen, and then it's an eight year old with like a squib on her chest. Oh, it's fucking horrifying. It's you know, it's one of those things. Um, <sighs> So here, I love Assault on Precinct 13. You as a parent is what I was curious about. Well, that's, see, that's the thing is like, I, yeah, and I've talked to you about this before, Shane, about how I have a, I have a lot of trouble watching children die in movies. Like it's There's not. There's a lot of parents I've heard say that. They just can't watch yeah, movies with kids in peril It's one of the things that kept anymore. me from fully embracing like hereditary. I was like, even though I know that that's like the point of that movie, I'm just like, oh, it's so hard for me to watch. You know, Ooh, it's like, okay. uh, just like watching young children being, uh, dying like that. And so it's all on pre-sick. I'll temper my recommendation for you on hereditary. I'll, I'll stop bugging you about that for a while. <laughs> yeah. But with uh, pre-sick 13, I, um, I don't know. I can't decide how I feel about that. It's I, I, that's another one of those movies that I had seen, um, years ago. Didn't remember it that well and watched it actually recently, like a, like a year ago, which is of course, you know, that's since I've become a father. And, and, and so it's a lot harder for me to watch that kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's a film that I really enjoy on a lot of levels, but I actually think that that's, that's one of those decisions that I wonder if he would make again as an old. He's flat out said, no, he wouldn't. Yeah. He said, I heard him recently in an interview say he wouldn't. It feels like a young filmmaker kind of like sort of, I don't know, it's 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 salacious for the sake of being salacious or something like that. Just to kind of because like it's a plot device. to get the Yeah, thing. but it's effective. It, uh, it oh, it's totally no effective. one does. Uh, I, see, I don't that scene works so well for me and as a childless, heartless uh, cinephile. But <laughs> like it's just no one has there, there's all these rules in Hollywood movies where you just know certain people are safe and it really lets you feel like not everyone's yeah. safe in this. Well, it also, you know, it does something that, again, one of the things that I love so much about Carpenter's films is his sort of desire to, he he seems to be obsessed with the, with the notion of like pure evil, right? Yeah. Like, like the, 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 it comes down this trilogy too a lot. Yeah. Well, the, well, all the gang members in precinct 13 have no nuance to them. They're just like, they're basically zombies. Right. Or obviously Michael Myers is just the embodiment of pure or, you know, unmitigated evil. Um, the thing like just wants to devour and destroy, like all these things are just like, they have no nuance to them. They have, they're not, they're just a force for destruction. Right. And there is something like the, I forget the guy who plays that character who shoots the girl in, in precinct 13. That's he's also in escape from New York with the, the guy with the massive spiky hair and escape from New York. I forget his name. Um, uh, but he's amazing. He's like, he, he's only cause he, he dies pretty early in precinct 13, but he like, he sticks in your mind. Cause he's so, because I will say, as horrifying as I find that scene, it's very effective. Like you do immediately like, Oh my God, all, like, all the rules are thrown out the window. The stakes are immediately raised. Anybody can die. Um, so yeah. So I do find that that moment to be very effective. Um, although actually I will say like for me, the most effective death in that particular movie is um, 
the one that you see, the one that you don't see, the woman, there's that woman who's like freaking out in Precinct 13 who, um, I forget who, she, she's also in Halloween. Um, but, uh, she's, uh, she's freaking out. She wants to leave. And then during that, they have that massive shootout where like, that goes on for like 10 minutes. And then at the end of it, the smoke kind of clears and they just look down and she's dead on the ground. Okay. Um, and it's, and it's a horribly shocking. It's, it's probably the more, it's the more shocking death for me. Um, maybe it's just because I, I knew that the little girl was going to die. And I, that's one of those things that stays in your mind. But upon a recent watch, I'm like, oh my God, that kind of like just, oh, she's just dead. She's just gone, you know. The randomness. Yeah, the, the randomness of it all. Um, again, adds to that sense of overwhelming dread that I think he does so well. The ending of the thing, like, I think to, to me, I think Prince of Darkness is even uh, maybe it's the uh, over religi- religiosity of it is more bleak to me. But because it's even though it's a sci-fi movie, the thing still it doesn't have any of that into it. So I guess it is a little more realistic that the, the way the apocalypse is going to happen. But well, one article more bleak. One article it. said the uh, it's this trilogy has to be pretty grim when the thing is the the most fun to watch. (laughs) (laughs) He's just started this idea that this is what kind of the the fight against put like putting the audience's face in bleakness is what maybe is the reason he did, he didn't hit Spielberg levels. Right. Well, you know, they, they always say, you know, you know, you're going to have that happy ending to to help the box office. And uh, obviously these don't have happy endings. Um, and this is, and and some of them have vague endings, you know, are vague. Uh, yeah, I I just I don't like that logic, but whatever. I mean, I just well, I, and that's I've I've actually never understood that logic when it, at least when it applies to specifically horror films, because I think it is the vagueness of the endings that allows the horror to continue past the ending of the movie. That's why you return to the thing. That's why you think about it is because like it reverberates. If everything is like knitted up or sewn up tightly at the end, then it kind of like it it ends with the film. But the, all of these movies sort of like they 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 reverberate out because of those the vague endings, you know? All these movies live on in your mind after you watch them. Right. And it almost it's a reason why like none of them you know, I've, I've never seen the sequel to the thing, and I probably will never will. Same. Uh, or I guess it's a prequel. It's a prequel. Never mind. Um, but if they ever made a sequel, I wouldn't watch it. Just because I think that's the whole thing is like you don't because he ends all of these films on a question. And the same reason why Blade Runner is so great. Like the 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 actual answering of whether of whether Deckard is a replicant or not is is you don't want that answered. It's like it's like explaining a magic trick. You don't want the trick explained to you. You want the question to be Who'd right. make a sequel to Blade Runner then, huh? Who who would possibly do that? Who could possibly try to do that and try to tackle Dune as well? Well, I mean I mean the the test of time is what proves these films and proves that uh, vague does work and uh, the uh, non answers work as opposed to the films that do get wrapped up in an ice bow and nobody talks about them anymore. Here we are talking about Prince of Darkness. We're talking about Matt in the Matt of the Madness. Uh, uh, do can we, can we move on to Prince of Darkness? Sure. It, oh, wait, wait, one last thing I want to say, sorry, one last thing I want to say about the thing before we move on. I do think perfect casting in that movie. That is why that movie is partly so fun. It's because none of those characters have any specific defining traits to them, but they're all interesting people to look at. Has um, anyone ever written anything about it's all men there? 
oh, I'm sure someone's written about it. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, it's a very, I mean, the masculinity aspect of it is kind of what makes it like the fact that like you have all these testosterone, like hard grizzled men in a, in a, in a tight place together, not trusting one another. Like that's what like makes it the, the, the bottle, the, you know, the, um, the powder keg that it is. Okay. I mean, I think there's some centerfolds in the background, but like, like sex is not addressed in the movie. So like it, it's, I, it's like you said, it's like powder keg, but, uh, but can we talk about Prince of Darkness now? Cause I think Prince I'm going to be Darkness. the one, I think I'm going to be the only one really, we can keep this short just because, but I, I mean, the thing's obviously amazing, but so much of the, the, the like handmade feeling or the low budget is what makes Prince of Darkness work for me. The single location, like in, First of all, <laughs> Ted, you just watched the Prince of Darkness for uh, yeah, just last last night or the night before, no, two nights ago. I watched it for the first. So what do you think? Well, first of all, uh, I thought that was uh, really. I, I was laughing uh, how it extended the opening credit sequence is. Uh, I counted <laughs> it's, it's it ten like, minutes and twenty five minutes with the intercut titles. I'm just like it's how long? T- ten minutes and twenty five seconds? You said it's a, yeah. It's pre- <laughs> that's pretty freaking amazing. Uh, it was kind of fun. Um, I, I, there's a couple of uh, weird things I thought happened. Okay, the the, the container that c- contains the evil down in the basement of this church, it's dripping upwards. Yeah. Now it, that to me seemed kind of confusing because didn't they see the liquid up there on the ceiling? Nobody was commenting on that. They're not very good scientists. If yeah. They don't notice <laughs> that the uh, I that, that jar of Satan is uh, dripping upwards. Yeah. That that kind of uh, that thought that that was a kind of a Silly, I, I could have been addressed easily. And then the other thing, I mean, I'm just going to get this out of the way because uh, uh, the other part was they start digging at to the wall to get uh, the dentist done yeah. you know, out of the uh, out of the closet. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. uh, and uh, and then we go away to another scene. We come back. Now they're all going out the window, and they've just stopped digging on the wall. Totally, nobody's digging to the wall. And then they're they're trying. I thought to, he got through the wall. No, this is. Uh, they, they and he goes out the window and he has to come back in the window. Um, Parkinson, James Park, is it? What's his name? James, uh, what's the main actor? Um, I'm not Jam- remembering. Jameson Parker. Yeah, Jameson Parker. They actually goes out of the window and it's like they get and then we go back and then they're, they're back on walking on the wall again. I'm thinking, why? Gosh, they got to get they got to get this guy out of the of the wall. So that, I thought it was like it was like an editing mistake. It's like a really strange, uh, uh, out of order. Did you see sequence. this? Because I, I I thought that sequence. Because I, mean, I remember there was there's a nice messiness of where he tries to go out and then the it's into that um, side yeah. side. Uh, That's in the middle. They started digging on the wall. Then they go into that scene and they go back to the. They're trying the wall. to dig out of the wall to get him with the rest of the group right. at that point, and then still try to find an escape route out. But there's nobody digging. Everybody's working on the window sequence. There's no way. I don't. Know. I just anyway. Like I said, no big deal. I remember he's he's in that closet for a long time. Yeah, that, yeah. that is one of the parts of the movie. It's it's a weird part of the. There's movie a day where, like, night transition like, there. Yeah. Oh my god! Now this is happening. Oh no! Now it's getting worse. Like he's basically the eyes and ears for the audience. But I, I always I, I'm I'm okay with that sequence because like everything that's happening on like that, yeah, everything I mean, that's happening with the woman on the bed is so crazy. But yeah, his part in that is a little wild. It's no big deal. I just thought that was you know because I'm you know I'm I'm watching this for the first time the other night thinking we're going to talk about it so i'm keeping a very close eye on everything probably too close and i was just like oh, what but um uh the uh no but uh the thing about i, I watched moth of madness uh not, not to jump ahead too quick but i watched that just recently too and I'm, i probably watched it too close so not the more i think about these two films the more i think about going back to seeing them i think i'm going to enjoy them more and more as they go along okay 
Go ahead. Back to Prince. Keith, well, I mean, where, how do you, this is the weakest of the three for you. Well, yeah, it's not. I, I do think I put Mouth of Madness ahead of this, but I will say it's probably my third favorite card, Carpenter, just because again, like there's these, um, and I didn't see that until this year. This that that's the newest one for me. Um, I saw that for the first time about six months ago, and uh, yeah, I um, I think that it's. I don't. I mean, it's it's so funny because like I don't. I th- I think what does it for me again is entirely atmospheric. Like I love the feeling of being in the church, like the key going into that door, going downstairs, finding the jar of the anti-God or whatever they're going to call it. There's something about the feeling of that. And like, there's like, um, I mean, so much of the movies, just them sitting around talking about these grandiose, like, uh, things like what, what could this possibly be? And I think there's something about that that does resonate with me um, so much, even though if I will say like, yeah, certain things about the film, like the characters are kind of indispensable. I mean, aside from like Donald Pleasance and Victor Wong, like I can't remember really anything about any of the other characters. There's you, definitely like, a slasher movie uh, which characterization they, of it. Which is almost a comment in the film itself where they keep on referring to the one girl. Uh, radiology, glasses. They yeah. they don't <laughs> they can't even keep track of themselves because they're just so nondescript characters. Uh, yeah, they're all interchangeable. I mean, yeah. they all have like one like you have like the one the main guy who's got a, a rock and stash, and that's basically like his only like defining attribute. The rock and stash is the first thing I wrote down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I think but there is something just about like the. I mean, yeah, you just said it, Shane. It's a slasher film. It's like it's like a, it's like a it's it's a slasher film that kind of sneaks up on you, but because it involves the sort of a theory the um the sort of doom and like there, there's a, there's something when religion when religion and science meet and inside that meeting there is horror. I'm I'm just a sucker for that. Kind I of think the, the big thing for me is if you commit to it. So it's like it's like I mentioned earlier with The Exorcist, but Drag Me to Hell is another movie that fits in that. Where yeah. like I believe in hell for a movie, and so it's going to scare the shit out of me. I think the whole talking part and the concept and the the the, the climax where she's trying to drag her father, uh, the uh, the son's trying to the devil's trying to drag his father out of the mirror. Also, I think it's great. I could care. I could actually uh, easily get rid of the just the the usual. Uh, gore attack tropes that that it almost seems like John's expected to put those in there for the horror. Do fans. you mean when they're attacking each other? Or well, just look- like well the guy. Uh, well, the guy gets uh, killed by the bicycle. Uh, sure. And then there's yeah. another one outside where yeah. uh, he, he falls apart. The body. No, that one works. Well, but, the, the but bug effect, attacked. Whatever. The bug effects work really the bug well. Shit is amazing. Oh, I fucking love the bug yeah. Effects. See, that stuff's great, and and and, and there's no really, and it, it don't go. To great lengths to explain it, it's just happening. It's just happening. Yeah, the thing, um, the, the the bike thing is, I think to a certain degree that anytime I hear people talk a critique of this movie, it's all goes into this areas that I forgive in the movie for, which are budgetary and things like like Alice Cooper being involved with this movie and him stabbing somebody. It's like, oh yeah, I guess. Well, you know that's why the bike thing is in there apparently. So Alice Cooper is the one who. So so the bike stabbing it was something that it was like a gag at one of Alice Cooper's shows and they like, he like had the prop with him. So he's, so Alice Cooper, his character is the one who stabs the guy with the bike. So that's like why that happens. Um, but it seems like some of the jump scares in Carpenter's films, I could easily live without them because there's so much other cool stuff going on in them. And the concept also is interesting that this is really, if the religious folks out there, you know, 
listen to this, the, the whole idea about Jesus being an alien is, is really outrageous. But there's no, nobody, because it's in a horror film, nobody cared to protest it. And then, you know, Scorsese gets in trouble with the last temptation of Christ. Uh, they got, you know, protesters. I mean, I, they, this is just as outrageous as last temptation of Christ. One messes with gospel, the other is science fiction, apparently. So, yeah. well, this is also genre schlock. Exactly. Yeah. Take it seriously. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's, but that's, that's what makes John Carpenter such a secret like weapon and a secret auteur is because he's working in the realm of genre. People can just dismiss him when really he's actually getting in these kind of head. Like this movie is full, I think of some pretty, you know, dense, heavy ideas they don't all fully they're not all fully explained or thought out but they're well, in there. it goes to your point earlier earlier about like uh pure evil existing so like carpenter's basically designing these movies to get away with like pure evil like you don't need nuance on on some of this stuff like you want the idea that this satan is the is the alien satan is the bad guy in this movie astrophysical alien satan right well, the one of the things he said like uh one of the cool little things that he throws in there i love that whole broadcast uh in the dream broadcast thing. Oh, that, yeah. That's a nice, nice little thing. And it keeps on tweaking it, tweaking it. And it's it. such a cheap, nice effect too. And yeah. And, uh, that adds to the, the, the wonderfulness of the ending. Uh, uh, the ending is the part that like, I find, okay. So Keith, you've heard me rail about this. I don't think I've done too much on the podcast, but back in the day, I used to be the biggest Buffy, the vampire slayer fan and like the, of the show. And I thought the filmmaking in that it was severely underrated. And one of the best episodes in there from season five is this episode called the body where it suddenly turns into a major character dies. And suddenly though it turns into like four Ibsen plays. Like it's, it gets very, this genre show suddenly gets very straight, has a very existential episode about what death really is because his character dies. So they're all like, has is it, does it have a soul in it or is it the body? And the very final shot is it. what happens is there's a scene in the morgue where they encounter the dead character and like they encounter the body and they're just like, uh, one, one of the characters says, is that, is that her? And she goes, no, it's the body. And then he goes, well, then the other character goes, well, where did she go? And the last shot of this movie, of that episode, it took me until I finally saw Prince of Darkness to realize, rips off the final shot of Prince of Darkness because what it does is it's a finger, a clo- or mi- middle, or medium of a medium close-up of a finger going towards an object. In the Buffy episode, it's the body. In uh, Prince of Darkness, it's the mirror. It gets close to touching the mirror, and it cuts right before it touches. And it's such an effective poetic thing to do. Because what's also funny is if you watch the Prince of Darkness trailer, they show you the full shot where um, they cut out before the end of that shot, but what the very final shot in the movie. He touches in the trailer as it plays out in the trailer. He touches the the mirror, and then the mirror explodes, and that that's in the trailer. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think you know, Carpenter is a master when it comes to the endings of his films. Like I think everyone and people talk often a lot about how like his films just like like there's no like denouement like it just like they end they fucking end at like the climax like you know snake plissken like walking just like fucking like walking off right after the president gives a speech and like with the tape thing or um uh i mean all well, these these films are great examples where they just like they end at their they almost end at the climax pretty much or at least they're all ending on i mean we talked about the vagueness but they're all ending on a question like the ending of this particular movie doesn't like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, what's happening? Like, why would he be able to go to the mirror? Why is he even thinking about that? Like, it, there's there's not a whole lot that, like, would prompt that. But it doesn't matter. It's such an evocative, like, 
what the hell is going to happen and cutting out right before anything happens is such like he knows that like each of these films in the apocalypse trilogy leave off on that kind of question of okay what what comes next um and i guess the answer is the end of the world in each one of them but um but it's i i think that that's that's why I think it's so interesting about this ending is that it, if you really try to drill down and try to think about it, like I'm not exactly sure if this well, the movie resolves. Up, the movie resolves, matter, and, it, and it basically is milking this uh, what might feel like an arbitrary romance at the middle, in the center of it. Like, oh, it continued on because they fell in love, and that's the reason he's going after it. But it's also, as you were mentioning earlier, the characters in here versus the characters in the thing, not as strongly defined. So, right. I, I get, I get what you're saying. I gotta say, my favorite. I think the other thing that I, I, the reason why one of the reasons why I love this movie so much is it's, it is it, this movie kind of feels a little bit more like a playground for Carpenter to this do kind of weird shit that isn't explained. He we seems like he's bugs. having a lot of fun and inventing a yeah. lot of stuff here. Yeah, like a lot of it's just like like the bugs is weird, like the random homeless people who just kind of keep like standing around are kind of weird. Um, shoot some big guy in a video with some a backlit uh, smoke and that's Satan and then shoot yeah. shoot that uh, put that on TV and film that my favorite thing is the performance I can't remember the guy's name the guy who who stabs himself in the neck yeah that's an interesting whole sequence he goes to that mirror and what is what we're never really told is he fighting it is he going with it he's staring at the mirror you know, it just goes on and on. Just he's in the he's in the same room where Donald Pleasance is hiding, and, right. and and it just goes on forever. And you're like, what is he doing, standing there, kind of laughing, crying? The laughing crying. Well, I really think that what he, well, I think I feel like what Carpenter figured out is like this guy's got an amazing laugh. <laughs> like his like crazy laugh is amazing. I'm just gonna make him do that for half the film. Yeah, and it's super effective. <laughs> At least for me, I was like that, that guy's terrifying to me, and I have no idea why. Um, but uh. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that I feel like they were just kind of in this place and like having fun and like, let's just do this because it's fucking weird. And who knows what it means, but it's weird and it's effective and it works. Yeah, I mean, that, that's sometimes I have a problem with that. Sometimes I don't and during it with horror films and supernatural films. You could pretty much just, you know, gives you a license to do anything and get away with it. And it's interesting how each of these guys, each of these people are affected by the liquid and how the liquid gets to them. It's not consistent. It's, it's not, not consistent. I will it, give you that. It's they're, definitely they're, not there's no uh, uh, consistent concrete law. Like, okay, you gotta, you gotta spurt it at them and then they do this. Because like I said, the, he, he goes to the mirror and just kind of stands there, you know, trying to laugh, cry, whatever he's doing. And then uh, the other one, other folks are just standing there waiting for the guy in the closet. Uh, I think I'm heartened by the idea that you're going to watch this maybe in a few while and, Forgive it for its flaws and love it. For well, I did, yeah, I, I didn't have a, I mean, I never really had a problem with it. Actually, I think I've, I've, gone, I've gone into it knowing these, these reputations on it. Um, but uh, there's a lot. To, I mean, there's a lot. I loved it. I said I was I love the opening with just that, the audacity that elongate that credit sequence. <laughs> um, I, and, I do want to mention because it is I don't think it's in, in the Mount of Madness, but um Carpenter had the same font for almost all of his titles for a good five-year period, if not longer. Right. Just that white on black text kind of thing that's super... Fa- I, mean, I, I think it works so... He managed to make it work so well because his themes are always so like powerful. 
and they have like that like in your face melody like they're, they're just they're, they're simple they're they're melodic to a weird extent and they're pulsing i actually you know they always seem like rhythm sections yeah i mean i knew i was gonna love this movie from the after like just from seeing the the title sequence because i don't think it is it isn't just like the ballsiness to do a 10 minutes title sequence there is something about that that is actually makes i think it helps make the film start off on an unsettling uh tone like there's something like because like it it has that kind of pulsing um sort of score that's happening during during under the entire first 10 minutes you don't know how long it's going to go on for things are interrupted like they keep interrupting the scenes with the title cards and there is something about it that music dies out at one point too yeah oh during the during the the it starts and stops in the middle of the scene yeah well there's something about those rhythms again going back to his rhythms that are very unconventional and kind of strange that to me start this film off in, in in a very unsettling way which continues throughout the film like this film I, even though i don't think this film is as strong in a lot of ways as mouth of madness or or the thing um i think i'm more unsettled by the whole tone of this movie there's something about it throughout that i just like i it feels like it has the feeling of a grainy VHS that I picked up off like the curb and put it in without knowing what it was. And it was like shown a vision of something. I, I'm, um, I'm with you to the tone, the tone of it. This, this, <laughs> the, this, this, this movie feels like Satan's in it at some point, you know? And it's also nice, uh, a nice change of pace. Typically uh, the bureaucrats, the scientists and people in charge are kind of like, uh, you know, uh, have a, a, a really bad disbelief. They don't want to work. They think it's silly. They got no. a lot of cheap skepticism. Yeah, and you go, no, we're uh, we're gonna stay over the weekend. And we're gonna get all this equipment together. We're gonna work it out and, and check it out and look at that. You know, I thought that was kind of a nice. Even if they aren't the best scientists, they're good grads. To yeah, get to it, was, the very it was least. it was a nice little change of pace there. I did like it. It was like this is just a very throwaway thing, but I noticed at the end uh, after every, uh, after uh, the, everybody sucked into the mirror. Dennis uh, Dugan gets out. Dennis uh, Dunn. Uh-huh. Uh, he gets. He actually just runs off. He just runs away. And I thought, oh, well, that's cool. I mean, because, you know, usually everybody has to get killed or stay around the talk or whatever. And he just runs away. And then I go, well, is he going to, is that kind of a chicken shit of him? But then, no, we get, a, we, next time we see him, he's called the cops. He's back at the scene with the ambulances and cops. I go, oh, that's a nice little touch. Oh, I thought you were going to say, I, I had would have to admit that if, if many of us were in a slasher movie, that's what we would really do. Well, I, that's what, you know, so, I, but it, it was nice. He, 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 he didn't, he didn't hang around. Didn't talk. He just well, he ran away. Get the hell out of there, you know. So. Oh, I was say one thing I, I will say about the film that did actually break the spell a little bit for me was actually seeing all the cops and everybody arrive and like they take Donald Pleasance away in the in the ambulance and I was like, because I kept all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, like ninety five percent of the people in this building just died. Yeah. How are they going to explain that? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, then, I mean, it's ostensibly downtown LA, so it's not like anything that's happening. The homeless people are going to bring the police down there. So, and and is it just me, or does Lisa Blount her red hair looks like a wig? I, I don't know what that hairdo. It just didn't really work. I, I, I like Lisa. Oh, see, I, don't know. I mean, like, I, I can maybe see the wig, but no, the red hair. Uh, well, no, I don't mind the red hair. I just it just looks like a, a giant wig on her. I don't know why. It just, it just kind of didn't her first like three scenes i think she has two lines so mm. there's that but i remember feeling that she was an odd choice for the main like female character in this only because she doesn't really i actually find like all the other women in the movie to be kind of 
st- to stand out more. Like the the um, the one with the glasses <laughs> we keep talking about. Yeah, she actually has like a something about. I mean, she's possessed. I think longer than everyone else, but she has like a way about her that is very fascinating and interesting. Um, Again, I think this is this is me forgiving slasher movie. Uh, you know, have your your two Aryans at the at the uh, male lead and female lead. So even though she's got red hair or wigs, well, so. actually, both both her and the um the the dude with the stash are probably the blandest of all the characters. Like they yeah, don't yeah. really no, no. do anything. There, I mean, maybe that's the point. I don't know because I actually I can almost completely forget about her in the movie until the final moment when she's like, you know, where she yeah goes to the only. mirror. Which I will say, oh, I don't want to let this movie go. Uh, uh, stop talking about this movie without me saying. I do think that the shot of her reaching for the mirror on the other side of the mirror, like when she's in the water or whatever it is, might be one of the most unsettling images in all of Carpenter's career. It's um, it's uh, what's it? Uh, oh, Orpheus. Um, uh, who's the uh, it's Cocteau. The- yeah, it's Cocteau effect of Jean the- Cocteau. Yeah, yeah, the liquid mirror on the side stuff, and like he was doing. Those oh, well, effect- that's is that. The- you mean the stuff of like when they're putting their hands through the mirror or you're talking about like having the liquid on the other side of the I mirror? I think both of them, both the mirror stuff. Like the, the specifics I'm talking about is the other one, the other one of the, the putting the liquid into the mirror, but on the other side, using liquid to deal with the reflections of water too. Cause I mean, the sound effects also an underwater effect too there. Right, right. Yeah. That's well, I think I, I agree with you on that shot is it's pretty crazy and amazing, but it, I, I think it, it, it was interesting too. He doesn't linger on it. You, it's, 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 it's just like, yeah. He throws it to you real quick and then p- pulls it away from you. It's a you. clever idea. And you're like, oh. It's, it's a showy, clever idea that he has, like you said, I, doesn't linger on. I rewound it several times. There's there's a couple of, there's like things in here that like, it, you know, um, it also reminds me a little bit of like, uh, there's that moment in, um, you know, we haven't talked at all about Christine, but like, like for, for me, Christine, when the car's on fire and like rolls, runs over the guy. Like that's also like another like that that movie isn't one of my favorite of him's, but I'm like I will sometimes just go back and rewatch that scene because that moment is so haunting and powerful to me. That this is like that kind of moment for me where it's such an evocative shot. I think like the other day I was on a walk and I just started thinking about that shot because it was like it 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 terrifies me. It's only up there for, like you said like for two seconds, um, but it like. It's a, it, 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 it's a thing that kind of sticks sticks with it stuck with me so long after first watching this film. Just the notion of a of of a person on like the wrong side of reality, reaching trying to get back, and like that way is shut off. It's fucking terrifying. Yep. And so it's a, especially for a genre movie to come up with a, a lo-fi effect that has a poetic re- resonance to it. Yeah. Oh. Do you guys want to do it in the mouth of madness now? Oh yes, Mouth of Madness. I think I think in the I mean I think the thing has now. I mean we mentioned a little bit about how the thing was reviled upon release, but like you know it, it didn't take too long for people to come back on it and realize that it's a masterpiece. And I'm I, I don't know what the critical the consensus is around these films now, but I I think in the Mouth of Madness is a masterpiece. I think it's like an out and out like I. Yeah, I love it from top to bottom. Its reputation is definitely coming back, I think. I think people are coming more to it. Um, well, there's also this. There's, it seems like, I don't know, do you guys feel this? But it seems like we're getting more and more of a resurgence of H.P. Lovecraft. Well, we had an H.P. Uh, the TV series. But there seems to be much more Lovecraft in the air now. And I think that, all of a sudden, that leads to its uh, resurgence. Well, Because going back to the Ebert reviews, uh, I was telling Ted about this earlier. Ebert singles out Stephen King, but doesn't even mention H.P. Lovecraft. And to be fair... Um, 
I come to H.P. Lovecraft in a little different way where, like, I've read very little of it. Little, but not a lot. But um, one of my favorite comic book writers, Alan Moore, just retired from comics a few years ago. And his last two significant works are basically about H.P. Lovecraft. And the, In the Mouth of Madness and in in his last works have a lot of overlap in terms of explaining and synthesizing H.P. Lovecraft, where a lot of it is about the uh, going insane maybe a writer writing about going insane, which turns into a meta commentary of the thing, the, the document you're wa- reading or watching plays into it. Um, the thing that I think in the mouth of madness gets better than any HP Lovecraft I've seen, which I haven't seen a lot. I haven't seen a lot of the Stuart Gordon stuff site beyond reanimator, but the magician's trick of reality where you're using film tricks to like completely like uh change out the the rules of a universe or the physics of a universe but in like an optical illusion way like this movie gets that better than any any of the hp lovecraft i've seen like color out of space didn't really have a lot of that in there right yeah i don't i I don't come to this movie with i I, i've never read any lovecraft i've never really been that like i haven't even been that like um inspired to go read lovecraft i mean i find the monsters and the kind of that sort of stuff very interesting um but I think I come to this film much more from, uh, I mean, I love Stephen King. I kind of like that kind of aspect of it is much more interesting to me. Like, like the sort of like evil taking over a small town kind of a vibe. Um, well, you can and, forget about Stephen King because Stutter Kane outsells them all. Stutter Kane, yeah, that's right. We outsells the Bible even. Um, yeah, that's what they say in the movie. And if, that's, and if they don't read, well, there's the movie. There's the movie. <laughs> I, yeah, that's sort of, um, I mean, all the meta stuff is wonderful, I think. And also, I will say, I think the reason why the Lovecraftian aspects of this work so well, from what I know of Lovecraft, I know, like, I mean, obviously, I know the thing that, like, with Lovecraft that people love about him so much is, like, the 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 horror being indescribable. Like, you can't actually film it because you can't describe it. You can't even think about it. And there is something to the way Carpenter holds. I mean, we've talked about this before, about where he knows where to put the money because he he ends up holding off the big reveals of the monsters for so long. Yeah. And um, and and then he doesn't really super reveal it either. Oh yeah, yeah. it's well they, they have like the fucking wall of monsters yeah. that you see for like a split second. Yeah. It's, it's mm. this uh, one this one as as opposed to the thing most of these monsters are in shadows and they are very typically Lovecraftian tentacle-based monsters too. But I love the fact that yeah, yeah I love that it's a tease uh, and then yet he the, he doesn't you you think he'd give, he'd give us a money shot he he doesn't he doesn't give us a money shot on him really in in a, in a way there's something so effective I mean I so I've actually so I've watched that sequence several times like over the past month just, just like the um when the monsters are finally revealed and and the thing that I think is so effective about it is a you have Sam Neil kind of like staring off into the void and you have the woman um I forget her name um. But she's 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 reading the uh, she's reading the novel, whatever. Like, and she's she's reading she's narrating what's happening, and she's talking about him seeing these horrible sights, and you don't see what he's seeing; you only see his face, and you, the, the 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 fear and terror on his face prepares you to be terrified for whatever's going to come, and then what comes you only get glimpses of it and you know it's horrifying. Even the reverse shot on that shot you're talking about in between the page that's been broken out is for a long period of time just a black void. Like it takes a second for the whatever light fog coming out of it is.
One unsung hero I need to mention of this movie, which I don't think I noticed. This is my third time seeing the movie, and I didn't realize it until then, is this movie is written by Michael DeLuca. Michael yeah. DeLuca was the head of New Line for uh, years. He was the guy that greenlit like uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, and he's war- he's been a studio head for like Paramount and Sony on top of New Line, and produced a lot of great movies. You know how young he was when he wrote this? He was 22 when he wrote this. He worked in New Line. Then he started out at New Line, the house that uh, Freddie built, and I guess he tried to get Carpenter to do this in the 80s. Yeah, well, yeah, because he knew that Carpenter was the guy, and like I think they sat on it for like five years or something like that. It's so weird because yeah, he was he was the head of New Line, and that's why like he was eventually able to get Carpenter to do this. But it was so weird that they eventually like dumped. This was he movie. head of New Line when this movie was made? He was, yeah. Um, and, and yet they still like, they, yeah, like I said, like they dumped this movie, which was so strange that he had written it and Carpenter was doing it, and they 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 just like threw it. But I was I I've kind of I wanted to look a little bit more into this this notion of like Carpenter working with these really young guys because. Um, Rob, uh, Rob Botan, uh, however you pronounce his name, um, was also super young when he did the thing. Yeah. The, the guy who did the special effects for the thing. He was also like 21 or 22. He'd done some work on the fog, but you know, this was his first, uh, uh solo thing. Was Howling after the thing? He worked on Howling? No, Howling was before the thing. Okay. But I don't think he did Howling yeah. by himself, did he? Probably not, but he, he, he's behind the Howling. I thought Howling was Rick Baker. Was the, the lead on no, that. Baker's on American Werewolf. He no, had... I thought he was on both. Um, uh, maybe not. I think so. They were dueling werewolves, um. Uh, that I think Bhutan was on was on Howling because I think because Rick Baker was supposed to do that then went to the where to American Werewolf and okay. or something like that. Um, anyway, I don't know if there's anything to that, but I think there's I, I just didn't know if like as Carpenter's getting up upwards in years, like him working with these young guys or maybe that might just be coincidence. But there's something I just I always thought that was so strange that you have these two guys being like the seminal parts of these two masterpieces being so young. Well, doesn't that speak um, to making sure to um, be a good collaborator, even though like. Uh... Carpenter. I mean, it's it's what being a good journeyman is is like making sure to bring everything in. I find the the, the Lovecraft aspect of this too is that I mean, if Deluca thought that uh, um, Carpenter would have been a good Lovecraft person, like there's certain elements of like Hammer horror that Carpenter showed love for, but I don't know if there's anything showing Lovecraft except for the fact that uh, at the mouth of, or uh, at the Mountain of Madness, which was supposedly Lovecraft's masterpiece the best version of the film of it until Guillermo del Toro makes his version of it is the thing, you know, it's the monsters in, in the Arctic. Yeah. I think I, like I said, I can't, I don't come to this film with much of the Lovecraft thing. It's more just like this notion of, I, I, I think what, what makes this film so effective I mean, it's, I mean, okay. It, it all hinges on Sam Neill's performance. I mean, it's just, it's just an, a magnificent performance um of somebody who was so desperately trying to cling on to reality and refusing like you know i i i i love the fact that he's set up as somebody who is there to sniff out bullshit right like he's there to he's there to call uh to call bullshit on things the one and thing i was making that, fun of is the freelance insurance investigator yeah <laughs> well position. i think well, b- b- because he's set up as that he's like he's he's primed to think that everything is is um you know is a fake is a ruse you know uh is 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 there's almost, everyone's Fair trying enough. to pull something Fair over enough. on him and so um that allows the the madness to continue for for him to deny the madness for longer than like a normal person would and i just think that 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 is what gets at the feeling of insanity so well is this feeling of like okay yes i am seeing batshit things but i'm going to maintain that this must be somebody pulling something over on me 
because it can't possibly be real. And then when that finally breaks, when he finally can't dismiss it anymore, um, you feel his character just collapse into chaos. And I think that that's what makes the film uh, such an effective portrayal of, of, of madness. Um, apocalyptic madness of apocalyptic madness. Um, I want, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I, I wonder, okay. I want to read uh, the quote for the end that I think is, um, um, Feels like a summation of, of this apocalypse trilogy, but the quote is uh, Sam Neil says at the end, every species can smell its own extinction. Last ones left won't have a pretty time of it. In 10 years, maybe less, human race will just be a bedtime story for their children, a myth, nothing more. Sweet Lord. Yeah, and that's, I think that's what, I mean, we keep coming back to this notion of dread. And dread is such a specific emotion. It's not, it's, it's, it's different than other things and it's kind of hard to describe, but I think um, what gets at it with all these things, this notion that there are, this feeling that everything that's tangible and understandable in the world can dissolve into something that's not just beyond humans, but beyond reality as one expects it or that it's not tangible and understandable too i see i i have this pet theory i don't even know i've told you this keith but um whenever someone uh directs any other kind of genre and just suddenly puts a horror version onto it like suddenly it the 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 sense of of propulsion to it or stakes raise immediately like part of the reason i think the original peter jackson lord of the rings trilogy works is because Peter Jackson directs an epic like a horror movie. And and Carpenter is a genre jumper. He still directs a lot of these horror movies with the sense of dread to them. So the stakes always rise. The stakes are always really intense in his his movies, I think. And ex- even except for maybe when he's being fun or something like big time, big trouble. There's some, there's some, there's some kind of, there's some dread in that, uh, actually. But, um, I was, uh, I don't want to uh, go off on another tangent, but uh, just some of the filmmaking thing. I don't know if it's in the script or it's John again, that now this audacity, I, I had to chuckle how many times he, he his car goes back into the, the, the city. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, just, you think, okay, third time, fourth time, you know, I, I, I forgot. How, was there well, there, or there's that one sequence at the beginning where they first see the alley and there's three dream, fake, dream fake, fake outs in that. Oh yeah, yeah. He wakes up, and then the cop is right right next to him, and like there's three. T- yeah. He wakes up three times. And I also well, I remember the car thing specifically. I remember what you're saying because I think I was thinking he can't possibly do a pass three times, but he does do it at least four or five. Yeah, times. yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. I mean, again, if you if you're in the spirit for it, you just love it. Um, I love also. I thought it was <laughs> I I had to laugh. I, I watched. I think I watched this for the first time during the pandemic, uh, with, the, with the heat of the the heart of the pandemic er, uh, year, and uh, but I stuck it in the other night, just watching some portions of it, and I just chuckled out loud with. Uh, he walks into the theater and he has a bucket of popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys see the credit block on the poster? Well, that it's the movie directed by John Carpenter. Yeah, Is and it, I think Mike DeLuca wrote it too. Well, that's okay. So that this is the other thing that I I bring to this movie that I I, I absolutely adore. I um, um, so I'm also I'm a huge Kurt Vonnegut fan, and I saw and there's there's a there's a moment at the end of um, 
uh, I had read almost all of his works. And one of the last works I, I saved that I hadn't read was Breakfast of Champions. And in that book, you know, he's, um, he's got this character that he has show up through multiple of, of his books. Um, Kilgore Trout. Yeah. Kilgore Trout. Thank you. And, and at the very end of Breakfast of Champions, uh, Kilgore Trout like meets Vonnegut and meets Vonnegut as his creator. And I think I remember Kilgore like even asking like, why do you do these things to me? Why do you make me suffer through all these things? And I can't, it's been a while since I've read the book. I can't remember exactly what Vonnegut says to him, but I remember feeling that was such a, a powerful thing. I mean, it means it's, it's the closest you get to the notion of man meeting God. You know, you, you meet your creator, you ask them like, what the fuck? Why, why is existence this way? And there's that feeling at the ending of this movie. I, I actually do think that I, I, while I do prefer the thing um, overall as a movie, um, I do think that that's Carpenter's masterpiece. I think this is the best ending he's ever done. Like just that notion that this guy who doesn't know if he's a character in a book or not, he's trying to come to the realization of that. And finally, when he realizes that that's that he is that not only is he a character in a book, but he's like, yeah, he's he's a character in a movie that we've been watching this whole time. And it all kind of comes full circle. It's almost like it, it brings that same kind of full circle feeling of like meeting his maker. And he just kind of accept that. That's what I love about his laugh at the end is that he accepts that. Fuck, I am. I am a fictional character and the person who has created me has decided to destroy my entire world. So what can I, all I can do is just, I can just sit here and laugh at the insanity of it all and, and watch it in a loop fashion. And just watch, yeah. And I think that that there's something about that, about that tableau that is hilarious and insanely depressing and haunting to me at the same time that is uh it works on so many levels for me because of that and it's offset by a laugh too and like the, the looping structures when it would like it, the just i i think i agree with you like the like it's i don't know prince of darkness is a, is a strong final image for me maybe not the ending itself but the strong final image but from a from a writing standpoint this is the strongest ending of the three yeah but overall, do you think what are the what are the, you think are some of the flawed films, Keith, that don't seem to work or don't hold up as tight? So uh, I, I mean, I love. Let's see. I mean, I, I mean, I really do think he has like a ten or eleven film like miracle run where it's you know it's everything from. I mean, Dark Star I haven't seen in years, so I don't remember. I know that's like his like a student film of yours. I don't even remember that much about it. But I just recently rewatched The Fog this year, and I thought that that was great. And Precinct Thirteen is great. I mean, I don't know. I think they're all. Um, I, I think where I start to fall off is. Um, oh fuck! I think. I mean, the first one that, like I said, I just watched Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and I think it's actually a solid film. It's just not a Carpenter film. It's almost like it just belongs to somebody else. It belongs to Chevy Chase. It's like not a film. Well, it was his, um, it was his baby. I got a uh, I got a book here on Carpenter. I'll give a plug for uh, Troy here. Assault on the System: The Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter by Troy Haworth. Haworth? Haworth? Would you say Haworth? You're the one that wants to get the plug. But uh, he uh, talks about he goes into great detail about how Chevy really nursed this thing. It was really his project, and he really uh, and he had the power on it. And John just kind of uh, played along with him. Yeah, because I know that it was like Ivan Reitman was supposed to direct it for a while, right, which yeah. actually feel, it feels more like an Ivan Reitman film. It doesn't really feel like a Carpenter film at all. Um, so I don't know. I would even say that that's like, I think that that's a solid film. And I even like have some, 
I have some love even for Village of the Damned, even though it's not a good film, I don't think. I just, I have like, I saw it when I was really young and it's stuck in my mind a lot. That's another one. Um, that's another one I skipped. It's, I have a really weird uh, hole there where I skipped and then I come back for Escape from LA and Vampires. Yeah, um, it's, yeah. it's not, Village of the Damned is not, like I said, I don't necessarily recommend it. It's got some really haunting stuff in it. But as a whole, it doesn't really work as See, a movie. See, I, I'm I. We talked about this earlier, uh, off air. But my uh, what I mentioned earlier about the VHS mid ones, those are ones I need to rewatch. So like, uh, Vampire I saw in the theater, but I need to rewatch that. I need to rewatch Village of the Dam. Well, I was going to say I, th- I think Vampires is underrated. I actually quite well, like Vampires. No, I yeah, it's I kind of got to go. I kind of got to love. It's again another one where I think it kind of peters out a little bit at the end. It, yeah, definitely. The ending uh, is. Is, yeah, kind of underwhelming. Whereas though, I remember being in a uh, having lunch with my friends on Saturday, and I had a variety, and they re- did the review of Vampires. And it opened a year before it came here in in France, mm. and I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds fantastic. Maybe Carpenter, yeah. you know, I was thinking, and so I was really just geared up for it, and it it, it wasn't it didn't show for a year, and then that opening sequence, that opening sequence. You know, you got it's uh, Leone, Peck and Paul, Western, yeah. uh, James Woods, a top grade James Woods. I just thought, oh my gosh, this is just fantastic. And then it just kind of, it kind of, you know, like it kind of peters out a little bit at the end. But it does peter out. Yeah. But but overall, I mean, there's so much, there's enough in there that may, that may recommend it. Yeah. Uh, I will say with see, vampires, what I love about it is the mythology that he builds around them are really is great. Like them coming out of the ground, like yeah. sleeping in the ground at night, is amazing. The biggest problem with vampires is, yeah, the ending and then um, the characters kind of, I mean, I, like Daniel Baldwin, like, I don't know what's going on with that character. <laughs> yeah. Like his his relationship with the um, with the woman who plays Laura Palmer. I don't remember her name. Um, Shirley. Uh, but yeah, Shirley, like she's. I forget. I have forgotten so much about this movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing is like the characters are kind of non-existent. They're, I, I, they're not really, and they're not interesting in the way that like, the characters in the thing are, even though they don't have right. much, you right. know, uh, characterization, they're just interesting people. There's something about the characters in this that are kind of funky and I don't know. And it does, it just like, it does peter out, but the mythology. And again, I think the mythology that he builds in almost all of his films is really strong and always interesting. The mythology in vampires is interesting and it works to an extent, but it does the ending kind of peters out. I will say where he starts to fall off for me, like I really think escape from LA does not, it doesn't do well, it for me I, at all. I, you know, I, I have not heard anybody be happy with that. And, and, and it seemed like a re and it's one of those, gosh, why do they do so many sequels that just seem like a remake as opposed to being yeah. actually extending. Mm-hmm. And then you had all this money and resources and actors. And then you had curse Russell back as a character. We love snake Plissken. It's a great character. And it just kind of what? And then, but guess what? Uh, our friend Lucas watched it recently. He actually, he went in and bought the collector's edition just to keep his set. And he said, you know what? I kind of liked it this time. You so, know what? I, I reread a review. Someone said that like, you know, it's Steve Buscemi's like kind of just uh, with Snake Plissken. I mean, that's, that's something. I mean, like, well, it's Pam Greer and Bruce Camp. I remember, I mean, you, and, you know, you know to, I was actually probably the perfect person. Peter to watch. Fonda? I was the perfect person to watch that movie just because I had never seen Escape from, uh, oh, yeah, well, I saw Escape go, from yeah. LA first. <laughs> In theory, oh, I should have. Well, been. yeah, I mean, that's, a, well, I think, yeah, I mean, the fact that it is just pretty much a straight remake hurts it a lot because Escape from New York is so, it's just a better version of it. So if you, if you come to Escape from LA first, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a lot to, t- there is, there is stuff to take from it. There's good stuff. I actually love the sequence where they're in Hollywood and they have like the plastic surgeon people. Yeah. Like, I think that's a great little sequence. Um, the CGI in there, 
It's not aged well. Just it hurts it. I, I it's hard for me to watch. I don't I, think it was strong bad. CGI at the time, but like it is. Although I do remember the Sci-Fi Channel specials about uh, the uh, earthquake sequence. It's like watching that kind of CGI, that early '90s CGI, where it's like it looks it's it, it looks like a bad. It's not even a. It's, it's like like PlayStation One game or something like that, like a cutscene from a, like it, it's just it's it's rough to watch. We were complaining um, about uh, the Sci-Fi Channel Dune on our last episode that suffers from that. Oh yeah, no, but it. Um, I will say like it, but that's where that one was rough for me, and and yeah, like I said, Ghost from Mars. I really didn't find any enjoyment in that movie. I think it was just I, I don't know what was going on in that film, and it, I don't know that one was. Rough. And like I said, I haven't seen The Ward yet. I'm kind of dreading it. It sort of it sort of sucks that like this guy who I think has just had like one of the strongest runs in film history, all of a sudden just kind of peters out in the '90s and 2000s. I, I will give it to him. He does seem happy right now, doing scores with his son. I mean, I, I wish yeah. uh, he had money. I wish he had respect. I wish he had uh, uh, respect from the people who are making uh, the paying for movies, but. I want to go back to uh, uh, his run, and I, I do want to put this in I, I, Big Trouble in Little China. It's one of my favorites, and I think I love the fact, and Keith, I don't know if you if this is something that you thought of or keyed into. I love the fact, you know, so many of the Hong Kong films, and especially uh, even the ones from the eighties, the uh, you know they could do all this magical leaping around and crazy stuff, and there's just no that's just part of the genre over there. And I love the fact that Carpenter gives it a reason for us dumb Americans that can't, uh, you know, can't swallow that kind of fun that he, he took a potion to do that stuff. Cause they, I thought, Oh, that's very clever. Again, uh, thinking it through and it might be W director that Richter that did that. But, yeah. uh, and, and apparently Richter and, and Carpenter got along very well, uh, working that script over on that one. Mm. I also love that, that the potion is the only reason why, um, Oh my God! What is Kurt Russell's character's name? Uh, Jack. Uh, Jack Burton. Jack Burton. Thank you. Is the only reason why Jack Burton succeeds at anything? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. They purposely want to make the hero the goof of the movie. Yeah. And that studio was a little. Uh, Barry Diller wasn't really happy with that. And that's when they they put that book in on the beginning and the end, just kind of the, the, to kind of tamper that a little bit. Like he is legendary. He's a legendary guy, but he's kind of yeah. a big goofball. No, that's what the th- it, that's what I think. I I had been nervous about revisiting that film because I'm like, oh, you know, there was such a fetishization of like Asian cultures in the 80s and so many of those movies. Like I'm just like, oh, God, how is this going to hold up? But you watch it. And even with all the the fantasy and like insane magic they throw into the the, the culture and stuff like that, I think what makes it hold up so well is that the the macho you know bravado white guy is the least capable person in the whole like he, i just love that he's like of course i'm the center of this i'm the protagonist i'm the action hero and everyone's like yeah 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 just please get out of our way you keep making things worse i think that the fact that that is the case is what makes that film still hold up so well today and not it, it doesn't fall in the same trappings that so many Hollywood films fell in during that time. Uh, the Kim Cattrall character. 
I thought was uh, she's so fun a lot, and that shows what a good actress she could be in the right in the right medium and the right. And Kim thing. Cattrall never seemed like to have like the really the push- career that you know you know that, that really the career uh, she deserved. Yeah, and she's kind of a Howard Hawks woman in that in a, in a way the, the the quick snap. That's a good point. Yeah, wisecracks yeah. and very snappy, like Rosalind Russell and uh, his girl Friday. Yeah. Well, I just want you know it was interesting. Uh, I by being the older guy here and and. I was telling Shane before we started recording about how my perspective at one time we were just like car like there was that whole group of Carpenter, Landis, Cronenberg, and Romero, all just kind of coming out at the same time, and they were all these peer and to see how they and we were all excited about it. And I'm a fantastic magazine and Starlog and all the stuff. We were just like Fangoria. We were just all eating that stuff up, and then something happened later. I guess the, the new guys came along or. Or something, and I, I kind of fell off it's, a little bit. It bugs me even more because it seems, I mean, I guess you can look at uh, short-term reading of box office receipts and just the studio heads at a given time, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of logic into why Carpenter's career. Like, you know there's a parallel I was thinking of. Um, he started out earlier, but if you look at when I was first started paying attention to this stuff, would have been the early 90s, him and, like... Um, Carpenter probably has the same career as De Palma and De Palma then ends the nineties on a big budget wave. Like it's just why, why didn't he get more big budget chances is my point. I, I you know, and I always kind of thought you would not be a Carpenter fan. Uh, I, and, I, I for always, long, and for the longest time I wasn't. Cause like, you know, I, I, th- you know, the, you're not the most uh, uh, loving of exploitation era, uh, uh, a corner of a uh, cinema. And, and, and he there's, gets, there's just so he, much good fucking filmmaking in, in Carpenter stuff. And it's, and, and, and like I was saying earlier, you know, Carpenter frame, but the same, it, 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 it there, there's something about that anamorphic widescreen that like, there's a lot of art and poetry going into it. I will say, I'm sorry that I, I'm late to the game on Prince of Darkness and Mouth of Madness now. I will say that I will, I will uh, admit that. Oh, well, I wish well, I, that, I, that's heartwarming. Like, cause I kind of brought you in. You were supposed to be a little bit the skeptic. That's well, crazy. you know, but I, I, and, uh, and I was looking at, I was getting all my carpenter disc together and I, I, I want to go, uh, to shop factory and finish off the collector's item. You know what I have upstairs to watch after we're done recording this Keith? Uh, uh, big trouble in little China. Uh, that's I haven't big trouble in little China. I, I I I've seen that that as a movie as a, the Indian I saw with my cousins a lot, but like all the way through, I'm still not sure I've ever watched. And again, th- little throwaways that Carpenter does in all his films, I guess. Now I'm starting to see this a lot now. Uh, the, the that that really weird creature ball head, floating head, just comes floating in in the sewer, and and you just cut, and then it just goes out, and you're just like, what the heck was that? You know. Well, that's the magic of that movie. All those little things that, like, again, don't entirely make sense. I mean, of course, like, and then the famous thing of the guy blowing up at the end. Good <laughs> God. Like, it's it's like, it's it's a perfect, I mean, that movie's even more fun to sit around and, like, watch with, like, friends. And, right, like, yes. And stuff like that. Man, it's just a blast. I will say, so, the other reason that's made me, like, this year, I've even started to love Carpenter even more than I normally did because I've been watching him with, uh, with Allie. Uh, because I was basically like, you know, you watch the thing. It's the scariest one out there. Let's try watch. We watched the fog together and we watched Christine together. And I'm going to try to get her to watch Starman. Obviously Starman's not scary. Starman. I I really want to hear how she reacts to Starman. Yeah. Cause I'm like Starman. Everyone. It's like, it's just a great movie. Like everyone loves it. And it's like, um, and yeah, it was just been such a blast. Like we, we had like, she, she, I mean, she was terrified during the fog. She didn't, she didn't care for Christine as much. Um, but the fog, I think like she was just, it was, it was one of those things that it's like, 
it's the perfect amount of scary and fun. And I think that that's what, what I've been thinking about preparing for this talk with you guys. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, why do I love Carpenter so much? And I do find his horror to be so fun. It's fun in the same way that I find like Paul Verhoeven films fun. And like these films are like, they're, they're both, because both of them are auteurs. And obviously Verhoeven not really working in the horror genre, but they both are kind of like, they have the schlocky kind of element to them, but they also have a lot. They seem like they're having fun doing what they do. Yeah. And they're, they're having a fun time. The movies are fun, but they're also doing, they're telling deeper things. They're having deeper ideas well, in there. A little bit, a little subversive. Uh, they like to sneak in a little subversive, uh, I think a little twinkle in their eye. Say, Hey, you know, uh, I yeah. That- so they're, there's something about these films that let that all like they're, they're those guys filmographies kind of line up for me is in the same way George Miller I still kind of throw in there too like with the Mad Maxes and so like there's there's something about these things that are just like they're great filmmaking and they're really George fun. Miller's Twilight Zone contribution his uh uh what Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet or is that yeah. what it is yeah it's just like yeah it's good filmmaking people having fun doing it I just want to kind of end the fact that why do you think uh. It seems it still seems to be a stigma on John Carpenter, like he's over here. He's not with, he's not with the, the Coppola and and Spielberg and uh, any of the movie brats. Yeah, the or movie even brats even the genre ones. He doesn't get the uh, the consideration and the love of being over there. He's like, oh, he's a cult guy, or he's over in this corner, or he does, you know, he's a genre guy. But it shouldn't. He, uh, you you think like at the very least, the thing alone would prop him up to that. Was he? It, should he be in that group? Should he be in it with or with Fincher and Anderson and uh, those guys, or does he? He should be over here by himself, or does he deserve? Well, I mean, is it a generational thing of like where is he at compared to Cronenberg? See, see, Cronenberg kind of went mainstream, you know, by the end of or he his, just stopped doing horror. Yeah, he's, he's, never yeah. mainstream, but he's just stopped doing horror. Well, yeah, but he does a version of it now. But he, yeah, but it, it, it's still there. But it's, I don't know. And, and of course, Romero's a whole other story too. But uh, well, I mean, Keith, do you sense that that he's still kind of like separated from the the big circle, or he's or did he deserve? Been, oh, d- uh, definitely. I mean, I feel like is it the budget? Is the act? He doesn't use big actors or. You know, well, I think it's because of this thing. I mean, I think it's because of the thing about him doing like ostensibly his films on the surface are um, like the deeper the, the deeper themes are kind of buried underneath the genre elements. Like Cronenberg is different because like he's he actually, I think, delves deeper into the or especially like with his later films, he goes deeper into the art house with like horror elements where Carpenter really is just like, I'm going to tell you a good story, like in a good way. So and you're, a campfire. And right. so you're saying amazing. he's getting punished for telling a good story, basically. I think he, yeah. Well, by the people, by the, by the, the, those who elevate people to the authorship. Yes. And because most of his successes, I think are in, are almost all in the genre world. I mean, every guy we, you just mentioned have successes outside of the. I mean, Cronenberg. Well, you, started, you're going to get to Starman soon, so. Well, no, no, but I, I know, but like, and I think that's great, but I think that that, I mean, that maybe that's an outlier. I don't know why. I don't entirely know why, but I will say, I think when you look at someone like Cronenberg, or, uh, I mean, obviously you got things like Coppola and Scorsese. They're doing all sorts of things, and they have such a distinctive style. Um, but they've all left. They, they 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 will leave genre or come back to genre. I mean, Cronenberg's completely left genre and then like never came back to it. Um, and Raimi almost kind of left in a way, uh, almost. Yeah. Uh, but he did the the Oz movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Raimi's in that circle though. 
I wouldn't say Raimi or Romero. I mean, Romero and or and Carpenter are kind of in the same boat, where like I think everyone looks into they look are looked at a genre. I think Raimi had much. Uh, I mean, Raimi's whole thing was that um, it, being a studio guy, he he was where his uh, reputation was maybe diminished. But like from a filmmaking standpoint, everyone always gave him chops. Where that like people were not giving Carpenter, were not giving Carpenter. I think, don't you? Tim? No, I, I think I I I, I mean. Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't thought about that. I think I think does I think Raimi gets more uh, love than Carpenter in some ways, in a weird way, and I, and I don't know why. You know why that is? Well, let's let this podcast be <laughs> something that uh, is fighting that perception. Keith Ray's, thank you for doing the podcast, Ted. As always. Yeah, I came and I, I had I was I was going to chew some bubble gum, but I'm all out. <laughs> the one Carpenter movie we didn't talk about barely at all through this. You managed to ref at the very end. Good on you, Ted. Good on you. Thanks, Keith. No, my pleasure. I, I'm always happy to come on and talk about Carpenter anytime of the day. Yeah.